that. Stampede's coming. Here we go, here we go. Must be Ford Truck Month. It's time to get the best deals on America's best-selling trucks for 42 years straight. But hurry. Because this stampede won't be here for long. All right, folks, this is Jack Newtown here, and we are live again. Um, I noticed that the Google mic is doing a little bit better. It's improving, um, believe it or not, because now I can say period after my uh, description of the broadcast, because I know there are people have complained to say, oh, I like it, but... You don't have periods and you don't have apostrophes and that sort. And I was going to respond and say, well, because I'm typing the text, I'm text to talk. I'm talk to text. So I'm basically talking and then it goes in the text format. So now uh, I guess the feature upgraded to where I can say period and it puts a period right next to it. So then it does a pro a appropriate um, gra grammatical um, corrections so that's a good thing so hopefully that brings a little bit of improvement to people in when they refer to my description I know words gets misspelled it's on the basis of the uh, talk to text it's the talk to text feature I'm not actually typing it myself it's, uh, I'm doing it on a smartphone um, people say why don't you do it on a desktop well hello um in order to run speaker broadcast on a desktop, and it's something that people do not understand. Um, only those who have a speaker broadcast who are subscribers, who are uh, contributors, those who are distributors, those who actually bring forth content and not, not to be a, a spectator, is that in order to run speaker broadcast live on air properly, your processor has to be no more than three three gigahertz okay speed and you need they say eight you need 16 giga gigabytes of ram 16 gigs of ram in order to run speaker or broadcast now block tar radio i could have run i ran it on, on my computer like it's nothing i mean it was fluid but on a speaker broadcast, it takes more resources because it's an actual live broadcast, and you have the soundboard on there built in on the on the brought on the speaker um, download. So it's going to take more resources. Now on a mobile version, it doesn't have as many options, so it takes lesser resources, and plus, um, it is only performing one function, and that one function is the is running on one app. So you can't run mobile apps at the same time. Mobile phone only runs one app at a time. Now, your lap, your computer runs multiple apps at the same time. That's why it's called a multifunctional um, PC, personal computer. It does more than one task. The smartphone only does one task to play speaker broadcast. So therefore, it's no little to no lag whatsoever. And there's no shutdowns. And when I have my other computer... I had issues of my computer shutting down completely off and restarting based on I ran out of memory. 
because of eight gigs was not enough. And uh, and uh, the gigahertz processor was, it was like 4.0, I believe. Yeah, it was 4.0. But during that time, that board did not have 16 gig upgrade. So I dealt with only eight. So now technology has advanced to where you can get 16, 32 gigs. So until I get that, till I get, you know, till I get all the items purchased completely and built it up, I'm going to run it up to 32, 32 gigs uh, of RAM. Um, and uh, to make that very proficient. So that means I will not run out because a speaker broadcast do run mainly on dedic on graphics. Your graphics card has to be strong to run on speaker broadcast. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you do like a podcast, you're doing a live radio, your graphics card is going to determine um, the lag time and, and your upload speed as well. Your upload speed and the graphics card is going to determine the consistency. Um, if you know some people who take it real seriously, they build computers or they buy a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand dollar laptop or desktop to run a podcast, to run a broadcast, because podcasting audio media is very um, RAM heavy. It's graphics heavy too. Um, so, so when I do the talk to t- talk to text, it gets a little confusing based on the Google's uh, interpretation. So it's gotten better. So hopefully we, we get that done. Now, besides that, um, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided to allow the case between Comcast Corporation versus Byron Allen, who is the uh, media mogul. And the beef is based on a discrimination act in which Comcast has trying to find ways to prevent Byron Allen for getting a piece of the pie and then allowing white corporations to get a piece of the pie, but not him to get a piece of the pie. Uh, well, actually it's Jewish. Uh, Comcast is a Jewish owned company and that's not being discriminatory or racial or whatever. It's just the facts. You could look it up. Um, now, over the course of our arguments, however, the justice struggle over where the lower court that cleared the way for a $20 billion lawsuit against Comcast to proceed had reviewed the case under the proper legal standards. So they did, the Supreme Court did question the Ninth Circuit Court in California to whether the, the judge has properly reviewed the case under the legal standard. But at the same time, judges can make decisions. I didn't hear the Supreme Court give an opinion about Judge Pesky, who only allowed Brock Turner to do three months in prison, in jail for rape that was admitted. Um, and Pesky was allowed to give a extremely lenient sentence, just like a number of these judges were given lenses, uh, sentences towards rapist, young, preppy, white, privileged rapist. Um, and there were no outcry on the Supreme Court and their opinion on that. So, um, just like the whole Aaron Andrews $55 million lawsuit against the Marriott, which she won, which I believe, okay, 
you may deserve five to ten million dollars. But for someone, a people Tom looking at you naked and filming you does not render fifty five million dollars. I'm sorry. Nobody's really not looking at you like that. Aaron Andrews. I'm sorry. I can see if you was um, Kim Kardashian. I can see people, you know, really want to look at you. But Aaron Andrews, you just a bony white girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. And your body's built like a 14-year-old boy. That's just the facts. Um, get mad? Fine. Email me at jackradioshoulder1 at gmail.com if you would like to get a complaint. I don't care. Um, so you had plenty of frivolous lawsuits that went on in various states, California, New York, etc., so I don't know why the Supreme Court would feel that the judge may have be uh, what's the word they are. in a way they were saying the judge in the lower Ninth Circuit Court was incompetent. But yeah, you might have a few of incompetent people on the Supreme Court. One who was accused of rape. Yeah. Mm hmm. Never had. Well, oh, well, actually, two. Well, no. One was accused of sexual harassment, which was Clarence. Which, okay, that's bad, but that's not compared to rape. Other one was accused of rape. Brett Kavanaugh. I'm not saying it's true or untrue. I'm just saying that is what was brought forth when during the confirmation hearings. But I do believe Byron Allen, and I'm not being racially biased, I'm just being factual, does have a point. Blacks, businessmen, and people have been dealing with these situations for years. For those who understand the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwald District, Black Wall Street, where blacks were millionaires and wealthy, and the whites over there were not very happy because they were not part of that wealth generational system. And they reeled a false accusation against a 19 year old black bellboy accusing him of assault, sexually assaulting a young white girl. Even the young white girl even stated that, no, he did not touch me. He did not uh, talk to me in any inappropriate manner. He did not harass me or nothing. But the white community over there didn't care. So they started attacking um, the blacks over there and the blacks responded back uh, as usual. They respond because you attacking them and they responded. And it was a battle. The blacks were winning until they start dropping dynamite above the sky in the plains by the National Guard. That is true. The Klan came in. That is true. The build the, the, the city was destroyed. The blacks managed to build it together again. And of course, integration turned around and kind of uh, wither away whatever wealth generation they had within their community. Y'all can look that up about Black Wall Street. I think PBS did a special about that. Uh, many documentaries, Discovery Channel has also done one on Black Wall Streets and the um, what's that group called the Gap GAP the Gap Band 
they all are from Greenwall District. They all from the Greenwall District. You drop a bomb on me. And people were thinking like, oh, my God, this is awesome. You drop a bomb on me, baby. You know, like something sexy. But no, they were saying you dropped a bomb on me in Greenwall. Because they are the children of those parents who had the bomb dropped on them. Had dynamite dropped on them. And that was based on blacks having wealth and envy and jealousy came crept in into the white communities. Because blacks invested during the time of the oil boom while whites sat up there and thinking that, you know, well, we got these sharecroppers. They ain't going to be nothing but niggas anyway. And then those sharecroppers took their money, what they was getting from sharecropping and investing in the oil business. And when it boomed up, they became millionaires overnight. Look it up. Hmm? While the Jewish people that came here got a check from the government, the Polish, the Irish. Well, the Irish got some a little bit, not too much. Um, the natives, they got what? Casinos. I mean, really reservations and casinos. I mean, come on now. And the reservations are, are, are just like the projects. So that's not a lot of money there. And the casinos, which they're controlled by the government. Yeah, they're going to they get paid, but the government overall controls that. Those areas. And corporations are taking their land and building oil pipelines across there. So they're not free. And then you had the young 13 year old black girl who was a millionaire because she had she was sitting on some land that ended up having a whole bunch of oil. And then they were and then white men were trying to marry her so they can take the take the land from her. And then it got to the point that the court got involved trying to force this young 13 year old girl to marry a white man so they can take the land. Sipping on matcha tea. And so you're going to tell me these things do not happen? Of course they do. Just like Hitler exterminated the Jews. That happened. And I'm going to be honest about that aspect. The Jewish people, well, I wouldn't say the people itself, but the Jewish entities were bankrupting Germany. That is a fact intentionally to put them in debt. Hitler had enough and he riled up the people. And unfortunately, they used extreme measures to prove that they was tired of being robbed. Which is very tragic. And did not deserve any of that. But that's that was Hitler's method. Um, somebody said Hitler was a genius now in a capacity of strategy and war. Yes, he was. But in a capacity of being a human being, absolutely not. Hell no. These things happen. These things happen. Governor George Wallace of Alabama, 
Who got beat by LSU? Hate to break it. And George Wallace fought so hard to prevent blacks from doing the same thing that whites were doing. Making money by not working so hard. Business. This system always wants blacks to be a group nation of workers, not a nation of thinkers. They want us just to work, just to plow the fields, just to pick the cotton, just to do this, just to do the ma- all the manual labor. Now, of course, the Mexicans are doing it. So they're the new blacks. They're the new Negroes. So they're doing all the physical labor intensive jobs. Of course, the blacks are doing the less labor intensive jobs. Uh, entertainment. They realize blacks are very entertaining. So they say, you know what? Let's move y'all into the entertainment world. You can buck dance and act a fool and show all your sexy muscles. Show that big old sexy butt. Them big old boobs. Talk about each other and, and your mama, etc. And entertain us while we make so much money. So much money off of you by the billions. And we also want you to be consumers. So now you're going to spend an average of $1.3 trillion a year on things that really has little to no value. Less than $1 billion of that you buy that is of intrinsic value. The rest of it, it is not of value. Your preacher is not of value. Your chicken fried buck dancing Christian a plantation pastor is not of value. He or she is taking you for the ride to their uh, Gulfstream jet. Talking about teaching the word of God. What? How to be a slave? A good slave? And I'm not bad-mouthing Christianity at all. What I'm saying is this type of Christianity is dangerous. Anything, we should be pre-Constantine Christians. You know, the time of G, the time of Peter, Paul, etc. I wouldn't say Jesus because Jesus is Christ. He is the Messiah. And Christians were referencing to people who who adhere to the uh, the statues of Christ. The Christians were the ones who were anointed by Christ. But they died. So therefore, you you have what you call followers of Christ, but you're not a Christian. A Christian means you are anointed by Christ. Now, you can be followers of Christ. That's what you are, F-O-C. But you're not a actual Christian. A Christian is reference to those who are anointed by Christ himself. And only a number of a small number of those who are anointed by Christ to teach the word, the gospel. The good news, that's called the gospel means good news. They died, they were executed, they were murdered by the Romans, murdered by their own people, abandoned, left to die, brutalized, beaten, tortured. So if your preacher talking about he's he's a, he's anointed by Christ, then why isn't he being hung upside down like Malcolm X's daddy? Why is he? Why wasn't he executed like uh, like uh, Nat Turner? Nat Turner was a pastor. 
that Turner was a pastor and he paid the price for going up against the Romans. Where's your pastor? As in your pastor went against the grain? No, they never go against the grain. You always see them get going right behind the president's butt. Those would you call scribes and Pharisees. I'm just keeping it. I'm just keeping it 200 bucks. Like it or not. That's the thing about me. I'm just going to call right down the middle. I'm going to roll those dice. It's going to be 7-Eleven every time I roll through the racket. There ain't going to be no snake eyes. There ain't going to be no crap. Balance. It's going to be 7-Eleven every time when it comes to truth. I'm going to call right down the middle. Call me the middle man. Middle man Jack. Yep. So when this historic case that has to do with the Civil Rights Act of 1866. That forbids racial discrimination in business contracts. I believe Byron Allen has a case. And that's why the Supreme Court is allowing it to continue. They didn't dismiss it. They disagree with some of the parts of it, but they're allowing it to go forward. So, again, Both liberal conservative justices, however, raised questions indicating that the appeals court decision sided with Allen may have to be set aside and reconsidered in light of their eventual ruling. So right now they're considering setting aside the ruling with the Ninth Circuit Court. So, of course, this is probably going to take another year or, or two years or so. Now, of course, the Trump administration, well, I I don't know if Trump himself backed Comcast in the case, but now I know the administration does. So, Blacks for Trump, what does that show you if the president is willing to side with Comcast and there has been enough proof to show that Comcast has done these things and even statements that were made such as we don't negotiate with terrorists yet that has yet been challenged because it's true or we don't want another Robert Johnson coming up I you know Bob Johnson or BET they don't want another Bob Johnson that's what they said and yet they have not denied it and yet they have not challenged it yet they have not sued Byron Allen for those statements because they're facts so if you got that right there enough should tell you about racial bias. And I believe people of color and, and white people, including as well, need to get on board with this situation. Now, Senator Bernie Sanders have stated he supports Byron Allen. That's good. Um, he's one of the first candidates who is running for president that is downsiding with Byron Allen. I don't know if it's genuine or not, but we'll see, Senator Sanders. We will see. We will see. I know Killer Mike has sound, sounded the horn, which that I, I respect that from Killer Mike, that he has done that. He has sounded the horn. And I think other entrepreneurs of color, particularly black, 
I, I'm not telling you what they should and should not do, but what I'm saying is he's fighting for you too. Your business, your opportunities is on the line as well. That includes the Hispanics, that includes the Asians, that includes the Jewish people, etc. And it's strange that a Jewish-owned corporation is doing this knowing that they have been victims of racial discrimination and ethnic discrimination and anti-Semitism themselves. That is what I don't get. I don't get any of that. And they know how it feels to be discriminated. And yet they turn around and they discriminate. But look at Israel. Look at the state of Israel. They discriminate against the Palestinians. Dropping white phosphorus in the air. And I'm not saying the Palestinians are innocent either. Palestinians are just as guilty as the Israelis. Okay, the PLO is just as bad as the Urgoon. Like I said, I'm calling it right down the middle. I'm not no no if ands or buts about it. And then you got people running over there claiming land that they can't prove that belongs to their ancestor. What is that? Don't claim something that you don't have any proof showing that it belongs to you or your generational families or your ancestors. How does that work? You force another people to get out the land, to put another group of people in the land without any paperwork, without any proof. Now, if you got proof to show that that was your land, yes, then they have to get out then. But you don't. So that's considered illegal. And so countries is divided on that as well on those matters. Now, of course, Verizon, AT&T and Direct TV carries Allen's Byron Allen's programming. So he didn't have an issue with any of those. But I know what Allen is aiming for. He's aiming for the big table. And Comcast is the big table. Comcast is the big table. And he is not, he says he's not asking for a seat at the table. He's taking the seat. And in case like that, you got to take. I'm taking this. This belongs to me. Our ancestors built this damn country to where y'all can live comfortably, to where y'all can make this money, to where you can build big businesses. We laid the groundwork for you to make that possible. Just like the natives were sacrificed so you can build those businesses on the lands using our labor. Using our blood, sweat, and tears. Now, the immigrants later on in the 1900s came in and helped build. Don't get me wrong. The Chinese built the railroads. Don't get me wrong. But the natives and the blacks laid the groundwork and the infrastructure and the financing for this country to be the way it is now. You take the blacks away from free labor. You wouldn't have the United States of America. You wouldn't have it. 
You would have none of that. Hell, Africa would have been built up. Because they only took certain people with certain skills. They didn't just randomly snatch any other black over there and brought them on ship. No, they were selective in who, what type of slave they want. And the Hamatic warlords and the Hamatic kings knew who's who. They didn't just randomly grab everybody. No, they picked those who knew skills, who had skills. And they got rid of the scholars. They were selective. But of course, the degrading American public opinion don't want to believe that because of their racial and their privileged narrative likes to keep them in the dark on the number of things. Because they get so insecure because even the Romans even stated the Englishmen, the Welsh are garbage slaves. They dumb and they don't can't follow instructions. But these blacks, these guys got skills. They got abilities and they know how to follow instruction. That's why the Romans chose blacks as gladiators and slaves over the Welsh. Because they considered the Welsh people dumb and idiotic and waste of money and time so they got those who were formidable which were blacks because they had a skill set who you think built the pyramids yo So this case is very important. Now, people talk about the DACA. Look, without the Civil Rights Act of 1866, you wouldn't have DACA. So I put this over the DACA case because without this one, you wouldn't have that one. Just being honest, y'all can take it however you want. You know it's the truth. You know, this case is bigger than DACA because if this case is on the side of Byron Allen, then those DACA will have a big opportunity to become big players as well. They will also have an opportunity to become big players when it comes to wealth generation. This is wealth generation on the line, people. And I know, you know, we, we always going to be black and, you know, the, the Lord still is going to put us in a certain position. That's true. But the Bible also speaks of building up until Christ returns. And I wholeheartedly believe that. So what the Bible is saying, don't just sit around and wait for my son to come back to deliver you. Start working on building up the kingdom when he returns. I.e. wealth generation. That means when you have wealth generation, you're going to build up your nation. You're going to build up your people. You're going to build up your families. 
You sitting up there on the street all day being broke, teaching the word. And that's great. But if you're not taking any actions behind teaching the word, then it's fruitless. If you're not traveling around the countries from various nations helping those people, then your teaching on the street is fruitless. That's what you call building up a nation. So this wealth is going to help build up the nation until the sun returns. Because then it shows the sun sees, okay, you guys and girls have been working while I have been awaiting my return. That will show a positive, a positive sign. Not sitting up there waiting for Christ. Oh, yeah, I'm going to wait for Christ. I'm going to lay back. And Christ comes now. He said, like, what the hell you been doing while I was gone? So you say I sacrificed my life for your sorry ass to be up here eating canned sardines and, and, and getting drunk all day 24-7-365? No, I got to kill you now. You got to die. You, you're not worthy of my kingdom because you have not done anything with your talents. That's what Christ said. You have not done anything. You're telling me gone for me. No, it's going to be a structured, ordered society. You think, hey, you think Russia was orderly in structure? Oh, wait till Christ returns. It is or it ain't going to be no freedom. It ain't going to be no uh, I can free the nipple. OK, slash burn sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. You keep playing. There ain't going to be none of that freedom crap going to be order back to the old ways back to order back to leadership back to the pecking order why do you think Russia is pretty stable it's because of leadership order they choose order the president chooses order over freedom now I know there are some things Russia does that is not considered right violate human 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 rights violations they call it but hey America does it too it just we're more liberal about it and our checks and balances well sometimes they check and then the balance becomes negative so this Supreme Court case with Byron Allen I'm, I'm going to get to the impeachment in a minute is extremely important for everybody when it comes to free enterprise, entrepreneurship, opportunity zones, as they call, as the president calls it. This is very important. And I know you got some provocateurs trying to sway other people's opinions. Do not let those people sway you. Oh, he his wife is white. Uh, I ain't gonna support that. He talking about black folk, but he got him a white woman. Serena Williams got her a white man, but she does activism. But I don't hear anyone complaining. Meghan Markle got her a white man and has a white baby, but I don't hear anyone complaining. 
You want me to keep going? You want me to keep going further? You want me to keep adding more to this fire that you want to bring? You bring fire, I bring the black fire. Nigga, you call me Sasuke Uchiha, damn it, when it comes to that black fire. Because I'll bring it to you. You want to you wanna pinpoint on him? There's 10 other instances where black women have been marrying white men and have helped uh, black people. So don't get me started. So I'm not looking at that. Yes, okay, he married a white woman. Okay, we understand about solidarity. But if this man's purpose is to benefit you as a businessman, a businesswoman, then that would be the last thing on my mind is who he's married to. Just like Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou was with a white, married a white man. But her work helped inspire black women, helped inspire black people. Her works I'm not going to take that away from her because she happens to be with a white guy. Kamala Harris is running for president who is married to a white guy. Alexander Osario Cortez is a high ranking. Well, now she's made herself a high ranking politician. She is dealing with a white guy. Ilha Omar is divorcing her, I guess, uh, black Sudanese husband for a white guy. Hmm? And she's talking about fighting for black people and people of color and DACA. Yep. Richard T. Lewis, the first black billionaire, he had a Vietnamese woman, wife. We're going to jump on that. I didn't think so. So if you're going to say, well, I'm not going to not going to side with him because he's with this white woman, then fine. You 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 go your way. You go what you we will. We'll go in a route of trying to build generation wealth so we can become less dependent on the government, less dependent on the system, less dependent on food stamps and welfare and all this other EBT and all this other crap that are what you call booby traps. That's all they are, booby traps. Dependent on the government, that's a booby trap because now they control your life. They control when you get paid. They control when you don't get paid. They control how much you get. They control how little you you get. They control the quality of what you get. That's not living. That's not freedom. That's slavery. Like Kanye West said, America is for sale. There is a lot of land out there for sale. And we need to start buying some of that up. Start becoming landowners. Yes, the property tax is going to be there. Okay. We can deal with that. But like he said, America is up for sale. Instead of looking at 
renting out a building. We need to be more looking at buying the land that the building's on. You can buy the land, then you can build that building and then you can turn around and sell it. Or keep it. And that those are the nuggets I got from Kanye West. Instead of buying Ferraris and $500,000 cars and mansions, buy 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 acres of land and then build your mansion. That's what Kanye and Kim did. They bought the property, then they build their mansion on it. Buy the land, okay, and then build your mansion on it. Since y'all spend so much money on Rolls Royce, why don't y'all buy the company? Let me see. Let me see. Let me see the net worth. Let's look at it. Let's look at net worth of Rolls Royce. Rolls, hold on, Rolls. Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to see the net worth. Let's see how much. Uh, I'm trying to see how much it's worth. Let's see, Rolls Royce net worth. It should, okay, set $18 billion. $18 billion. You guys can get y'all money together or take out some loans. Bring all y'all money up. $18 billion out of $1.3 trillion we spend. You can take that amount, $18, $19 billion, and buy out Rolls Royce. So then all y'all have shares in it. So then when a vehicle gets bought by one of you guys, y'all are benefiting because y'all are bringing revenue to each other. The stock continues to rise amongst each other. That makes a lot of sense. Instead of Waiting for the new phantom. Why don't you just buy out the buy out the buy out the company that makes them? That's the main mentality of Kanye West. That's the mentality of Byron Allen. That's the mentality of Bob Johnson. And that's why they are billionaires. That's why they're very successful people because they think big. They think big. They don't think small. They don't think, oh, I'm going to get enough money to buy this phantom. They say, you know what? I'm going to get enough money to buy this company, buy the land, own, buy the land that the building's on. That's thinking big. But I ramble on about this. Let's go ahead and get started with the whole impeachment inquiry. And uh, I'm using a, a neutral 
channel C-SPAN. C-SPAN is neutral. I'm not going to use MSNBC, Fox, or any other of these corporate-owned broadcasts. I'm going to use a public government-owned broadcast because it seems to be pretty fair and accurate. Um, so we're going to get started. Let's play this. And I'm not going to play it because it's like four hours of it. So let's just let's just hear hear it. Paris to London, you know, during a call in, in July. That's correct. And I am, and I am going to do some skipping of it, you know, if, if it's if it's getting drawn, if it's getting old, if it's getting real boring, or it's not getting the meat and potatoes of what's going on. Now, this is the House Intelligence Committee in Longworth Office Building. So this is the impeachment they had today, and this is Daniel Goldman, who is a Democratic counsel, and William Taylor, who is acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, being questioned. I presume that. The State Department has not provided those notes to the committee. Is that right? I am aware. So we don't have the benefit of reviewing them to ask you these questions. Correct. I understand that they may be coming sooner, sooner or later. Well, we would welcome that. You also testified earlier, Ambassador Sondland, um, or, or Ambassador Taylor, that President Trump had delegated some matters overseeing Ukraine policy to Ambassador Sondland, who is a, a big inaugural supporter of President Trump, even though Ukraine is not in his domain of the European Union. Is, is that right? Several members, several participants in the meeting um, uh, in the Oval Office with President Trump, uh, with the delegation to the inauguration of President Zelensky, told me of that conversation, and it was at that meeting, as I understand it from several participants, that President Trump asked the participants to work with Mr. Giuliani on Ukraine policy. Did you come to understand that Ambassador Sondland had a direct line of communication into President Trump? I did. And you testified... Um, or rather in that text message, Ambassador Sondland says to call him after you wrote that. Did you, in fact, call him? I did. And what did he say to you? He said that I had, I was wrong about President Trump's intent, that there was no quid pro quo. And, but did he say anything after that? Did he describe to you, I believe you said, I'll, I'll refresh your memory, that you. he mentioned something in your opening statement. You said that he said that everything, I believe, and you had that in quotes, was actually contingent on the initiation of these investigations. What did he mean by everything? <clears throat> Mr. Goldman, what he meant by everything uh, was the security assistance and the White House meeting. And I believe you, you also testified that he said he had made a mistake in relaying a message to the Ukrainians. What was that mistake? The mistake he told me was earlier he had told, presumably President Zelensky and Mr. Yermak, um, that what was necessary for the White House meeting was the pursuit of these investigations. And he said he recognized that that was a mistake. It was not just <clears throat> the White House meeting that was dependent on the investigations. 
He said it was now everything. It included the security assistance. So it was not just the White House meeting, it was also the security assistance. Yes, sir. And so even though President Trump was saying repeatedly that there is, there is no quid pro quo, Ambassador Sondland relayed to you that the facts of the matter were that the White House meeting and the security assistance were conditioned on the announcement of these investigations. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding. Now, you reference a, a television interview um, and a desire for President Trump to put Zelensky in a public box, which you also have in quotes. Um, was that in your, your notes? It was in my notes. And what did you understand that to mean, to put Zelensky in a public box? I understood that to mean uh, that President Trump, through Ambassador Sondland, um, was asking for President Zelensky to very publicly commit to these investigations, that it was not sufficient to do this in private, that this needed to be a very public statement. And did you understand why uh, it was needed to be in public as opposed to a private confirmation? I have no further information on that. Now, during this time period in early September, did you uh, come to understand that from your conversations with the Ukrainians or, or other individuals that Ukraine felt pressure to initiate these investigations because of the conditionality of the White House meeting and the security assistance? Mr. Goldman, here, here's what I know. I got several questions, other officials got several questions as well, from Ukrainians asking about the security assistance. So what I know is the security assistance was very important to the Ukrainians. They had begun to hear from Ambassador Sondland uh, that the security assistance was not going to come until the investigations were pursued. What I heard from the defense minister, what the senators, what Senator Johnson and Senator Murphy heard in their conversation with President Zelensky, was the strong, the clear concern, the urgent concern that the Ukrainians had about the security assistance. Now, you also described a conversation that you had with Ambassador Sondland a week later in, on September 8th. And in that conversation, in your, your opening statement, you described um, how Ambassador Sondland used the term stalemate. What did you understand the, the concern about a stalemate to be? <clears throat> Ambassador Sondland uh, <clears throat> said, that if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. He, had, he, pre, pre, he began that, again, by repeating, this is not a quid pro quo, but if, the pres, if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. And what I understood for, in, in that meeting, uh, the meaning of stalemate was security assistance would not come. So even though he said the words, there were no quid pro quo. He then went on to say, but the security assistance will not come unless these investigations are done. Is that your, what you're saying? My understanding, that's what was meant by stalemate. You also described in your opening statement a, a discussion you had about um, President Trump being a businessman 
who wanted to uh, have people pay up before signing the check. And what, is, what did you understand that to mean? This was an explanation <clears throat> that, that uh, Besser Sondland gave me about his understanding of President Trump's thought process. Um, Besser Sondland is a businessman. President Trump's a businessman. He was explaining to me um, the the relationship, the understanding that uh, that uh, a businessman would have when he was about to sign a check. And by that, he clearly meant that President Trump was thinking about or had in front of him the, the possibility of providing security assistance to Ukraine. It was similar to writing a check to uh, uh, someone who you're about to send. He used, he used that analogy very clearly uh, to indicate um, that this would be this would require something. If that person owed him something before he signed the check, he wanted to get that get whatever he was owed paid back to him. And Ambassador Volker used very similar language about a week later, which indicates to me that they had that conversation as well. Did Ukraine owe anything to the United States? Ms. Goldman, they didn't. Um, they owed appreciation uh, for the support, um, and they, they uh, were getting support, and they appreciated that, but there was, not an, there was, not, there was nothing owed uh, to President Trump on that. But you understood the upshot of this comment given, made by both Ambassador Sondland and Ambassador Volker to be that President Trump believed that Ukraine owed him something personally. Is that accurate? Hard to understand, but uh, there was a feeling um, on by President Trump um, that he, and this came out in the in the transcript. Uh, I'm sorry, this came out in the discussion uh, with the inaugural delegation when they came back to have a conversation with President Trump on May 23rd. That he had a, he had a feeling of having been wronged. Uh, by the Ukrainians. Um, and so this was something that he thought they owed him to re re uh, fix that wrong. Right, but what he, what he was talking about, as you understood it, because in the context of the conversation, is that what he owed him were these investigations that he wanted. That, that would have been to fix the wrong, exactly. And those investigations into the 2016 election and Biden and Burisma. That's correct. Now, during this early period in September, We've talked a little bit about the fact that you continually heard that the president uh, was repeatedly saying that there was no quid pro quo. Is that right? That's correct. And he, he still says that repeatedly today. But regardless of what you call it, whether it's a quid pro quo, bribery, extortion, abuse of power, of the office of the presidency, the fact of the matter, as you understood it, is that security assistance and the White House meeting were not going to be provided unless Ukraine initiated these two investigations that would benefit Donald Trump's re-election. Is that what you understood the facts to be? Mr. Goldman, what, what I can do um, here for you today is tell you what I heard from people. And in this case, it was what I heard from Ambassador Solomon. Um, he described conditions 
for the security assistance and the White House meeting in, in those terms. That is, that were dependent upon, conditioned on, um, pursuing these investigations. And you heard that from Ambassador Sondland himself, correct? Correct. And you also heard a similar story from Mr. Morrison as well, is that right? Who also talked uh, to Ambassador Sondland um, about the conversations that he had had in Warsaw with Ukrainians. And what Mr. Morrison recounted to you was substantially similar to what Mr. Sondland recounted to you, right? Yes. And so, regardless of what Ukrainians may say now, now that everything is out in the public and we're here in this public hearing, that they felt no pressure from President Trump. It was your clear understanding, was it not, that in early September, when the pressure campaign was still secret, that the Ukrainians believed that they needed to announce these public investigations. Is that right? Ms. Kova, I know that. The Ukrainians were very concerned about the security assistance. And I know that they were prepared or preparing um, to, do, to make a public statement, that is, with a CNN interview, that they, that was being planned. Those are the two pieces that I know. And that CNN interview was to announce these investigations as you understood it, right? That was the implication. That was certainly the implication. Um, we've been focused a lot on the September time frame, but I want to go back two months to July, before the July 25th call. And you testified, Ambassador Taylor, in your, your opening statement that it was in the middle of July when you understood that the White House meeting was first a condition on these investigations. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Uh, we were preparing, uh, and, and I agreed that the White House meeting was going to be an important step um, in U.S.-Ukrainian relations. So in, in June and in early July, attempts to, to work out a way to get that meeting included a phone call. And so there were several conversations about how to have this phone call that eventually happened on July 25th. And you described in your opening statement a, a July 10th White House meeting with a number of officials where Ambassador Bolton used the term that uh, something was a drug deal. What did you understand him to mean uh, in hearing that he said that, uh, use this term, drug deal? Ms. Gomer, I don't know. I, I don't know what Ambassador Bolton had in mind. And was that in reference to a discussion uh, in that meeting related to the White House meeting that President Zelensky wanted and in connection to the investigations? The context of that comment um, was the discussion that Mr. Donny Luk, who was Mr. Bolton's counterpart, Ukrainian counterpart, the National Security Advisor, had had with Mr. Bolton. And that conversation was very substantive up until the point um, where the White House meeting was raised and Mr. Ambassador Sondland intervened to talk about the investigations. It was at that point that Ambassador Bolton ceased the meeting, closed the meeting, finished the meeting, um, and told his staff to report this meeting to the lawyers. And he also later then uh, indicated to Fiona Hill, who was also a participant his, uh, on NSC staff, that he, he 
Ambassador Bolton didn't want to be associated with this drug deal. So it was, the implication was it was the, the, the domestic politics um, that was being cooked up. And did Ambassador Sondland say this in front of the Ukrainian officials, to your understanding? Ambassador Sondland, in the meeting where Ambassador Bolton was having a conversation with his counterpart, raised the issue of investigations um, being important to come before the White House meeting that had just been raised. When Ukrainian officials were there? And Ukrainian officials were in that meeting, yes, sir. Now, around this same time in mid-July, did you have any discussions with Ukrainian officials uh, about these investigations? I don't recall. Well, let me show you a text message that you wrote on July 21st, where you wrote it again to Ambassadors Sondland and Volker. And if you could just uh, read what you, what you wrote here on July 21st. Gordon. One thing Kurt and I talked about yesterday was Sasha Daniluk's point that President Zelensky is sensitive about Ukraine being taken seriously, not merely as an instrument in Washington domestic re-election politics. And Sasha Daniluk, I think you just said, is Ambassador Bolton's counterpart, right? He's the National Security Advisor to the... It was. He's no longer, but was at the time. What did you understand it to mean when that Zelensky had concerns about being an instrument in Washington domestic re-election politics? Mr. Dynamook understood uh, that these investigations um, were pursuant to uh, Mr. Giuliani's request to develop information, to find information uh, about Burisma and the Bidens. This was very well known uh, in public, um, Mr. Giuliani had made this point clear in several uh, instances in the beginning, in, in the in the uh, springtime, um, and Mr. Donovan was aware that that was a problem. And would you agree that because President Zelensky is worried about this, they understood at least that there was some pressure for them to pursue these investigations? Is that fair? Mr. Dynamook indicated um, that President Zelensky certainly understood it, that he did not want to get involved in uh, these type of activities. Now, I'm going to move ahead now to July 25th, which was when President Trump and President Zelensky had the phone call. But before we get to the phone call, I want to show both of you a text message, neither of which, neither of you is on this text message. It is between Ambassador Volker and Andrei Yermak, a top aide to President Zelensky. Um, I will read it because neither of you is on it. Ambassador Volker says, good lunch, thanks. Heard from White House, assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate slash get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down date for visit to Washington. Good luck, see you tomorrow, Kurt. And this was a half hour, less than a half hour, before the call actually occurred. Now, Ambassador Taylor, was Ambassador Volker with you in Ukraine at this time? He was. Did you know that he was prepping President Zelensky for this phone call with President Trump in this way? Not in this way, uh, Mr. Goldman, but I knew that Ambassador Volker um, was prepping Ukrainians for the phone call earlier on. Uh, that is, in, at a meeting in Toronto on July 2nd, 
um, uh, Mr. Volk, Ambassador Volker had a conversation with uh, President Zelensky um, uh, and had indicated in a phone call that he at that time was going to talk Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, through um, the, the steps that need to be taken in order to get to the phone call. Understood. And you testified earlier that the security assistance had already been frozen, to your knowledge, at least by July 18th, is that right? That's correct. So that was just a week earlier than this. That's correct. So just so we're clear, Ambassador Taylor, before this July 25th call, President Trump had frozen the security assistance that Ukraine needed, and that the White House meeting was conditioned on Ukraine initiating this investigation, and that had been relayed to the Ukrainians. Is that an accurate state of play at this time? That's an accurate state of play. I, at that point, had no indication um, that any discussion of the security assistance being uh, subject to conditioned, by, conditioned on investigations had taken place. Right, but you understood that the White House meeting. That's correct. All right, let's move ahead to this July 25th call and between the presidents. Now, am I correct uh, that neither of you were on this call? Is that right, Mr. Kent? That's correct. And, That's correct. and you were neither as well? So you both read it after it was uh, released publicly at the end of September? Yes. Yes. I want to spend just a, a little time uh, reading the transcript, um, as we've been encouraged to do. And I want to particularly note four excerpts um, of the transcript. One that relates to the security assistance we've been talking about. Another that discusses a favor that President Trump asked of President Zelensky. A third where President Trump asks the Ukrainian president to investigate his political opponent, former Vice President Biden. And then a final one where the Ukrainian president directly links the desired White House visit to the political investigations that President Trump wanted. So let's look at the first excerpt, um, which is near the beginning of the call when President Zelensky discusses the military aid that the U.S. provides to Ukraine. He says, I would also like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. We are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. Now, at the time of this phone call, Ambassador Taylor and, and Mr. Kent, you, you both knew that the aid had been frozen. Is that right? That's yes. correct. And um, Ambassador Taylor, you testified that President Trump obviously also knew that the aid had been frozen as well, since he was the responsible for doing that. Is that correct? That's what I had been told. That's what we heard on that conference call, yes. But to neither of your knowledge, the Ukrainians were not aware of that at that point. Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. But right after President Zelensky thanks President Trump for his great support in the area of defense, President Trump then says, and we'll go to the next excerpt, I want you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people. The server, they say Ukraine has it. And then at the end of the paragraph he says, whatever you can do, it's very important that you do it if that's possible. Now, Mr. Kent, you've testified a little bit about how important this White House meeting was to President Zelensky. 
How would you expect a new Ukrainian president to interpret a request for a favor from the President of the United States? I cannot uh, interpret the mind of President Zelensky uh, other than to say that it was very clear that what they were hoping to get out of this meeting was a date and a confirmation that he could come to Washington. Obviously you can't put yourself in the mind, but if the Ukrainian president for a country that's so dependent on the United States uh, for, for all things, including military assistance, is uh, requested to do a favor, how do you think the Ukrainians would interpret that? Well, if you uh, go further into the call record as part of this, and we don't have it on screen, but to the best of my re recollection, reading it after it was released on September 25th, President Zelensky went into uh, having whatever your problems were, that was the old team, I've got a new team, and we will do whatever is appropriate uh, and be transparent and honest about it. I, I don't remember the exact words, but uh, he was trying to be, uh, in his own words in response, be responsive uh, to uh, conduct uh, the business of Ukrainian government in a transparent and honest manner. Now, when he talks about this um, crowd strike and the server, what do you understand this to be in reference to? To be honest, I had not heard of crowd strike until I read this transcript on September 25th. Do you now understand what it relates to? I understand it has to do with uh, the uh, story that uh, there's a server with uh, missing emails. Uh, I also understand that one of the owners of or uh, of CrowdStrike is a Russian-American. I'm not aware of any Ukrainian connection to the company. Now, are you aware that this is all part of a larger allegation that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election? Yes, that is my understanding. And to your knowledge, is there any factual basis to um, support the allegation that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election? To my knowledge, there is no factual basis, no. And in fact, who did interfere in the 2016 election? I think it's amply clear that Russian uh, interference was at the heart of the uh, interference in the 2016 election cycle. Let's move to the third excerpt that I mentioned related to Vice President Biden. <clears throat> and it says, the other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son. This is President Trump speaking. That Biden stopped the prosecution and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution, so if you can look into it, it sounds horrible. Now, at the time of this call, Vice President Biden was the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination in the 2020 election. And Mr. Krent, are you familiar, as you indicated in your opening statement, about these allegations related to Vice President Biden? I am. And to your knowledge, is there any factual basis to support those allegations? None whatsoever. Um, when Vice President Biden acted in Ukraine, did he act in accordance with official U.S. policy? He did. Now, let's go to then the last uh, excerpt that I wanted to highlight, which is President Zelensky speaking, and he says, I also wanted to thank you for your invitation to visit the United States, specifically Washington, D.C. On the other hand, I also want to ensure you that we will be very serious about the case and we will work on the investigation. Now, Ambassador Taylor, right after President Zelensky mentions his much-desired Washington visit, he says, on the other hand, 
and then says that Ukraine will be very serious about the investigation. Is this the same link between the White House visit and the investigations that Ambassador Volker had texted to Andrei Yermak just a few minutes before this conversation? That's my assumption. Now, just to summarize what we've just read in this July 25th call between the presidents, the Ukrainian president thanked President Trump for security assistance that President Trump had just frozen, to which President Trump responded that he wanted President Zelensky to do him a favor, though, by investigating the 2016 U.S. election and the Bidens. Then President Zelensky says that he will pursue these investigations right after he mentions the White House visit. Is that your understanding, Ambassador Taylor, of what we just read? Yes. And Mr. Ken, is that yours? Yes. I yield back. The majority time has expired. Um, would you gentlemen like a brief recess? Well, let's take a five-minute recess, and then we'll resume with minority questioning. Some of those are not. Of the call that a temporary delay was put on the security assistance for them. Furthermore, as the ambassador testified, these holds occur from time to time. Both he and Ambassador Volker were confident the delay would be lifted. And in fact, military aid to Ukraine has actually substantially improved since President Trump took office. Ambassador Taylor testified that President Trump was the first president to see that Ukraine was afforded Javelin anti-tank weapons. This was a very strong message that Americans are willing to provide more than blankets. This was the Obama administration's approach. Note this important fact. The security assistance was provided to Ukraine without the Ukrainians having done any of the things they were supposedly being blackmailed to do. So we're supposed to believe that President Trump committed a terrible client crime that never actually occurred and which the supposed victim denies ever happened. I'd like to briefly speak about the core mistruth at the heart of the Democrats' impeachment drive. They claim the president tried to get the Ukrainians to, quote, manufacture dirt against his political rivals. This is supported by precisely zero evidence. Once again, the Democrats simply made it up. But let's consider the broader question about why President Trump may have wanted answers to questions about Ukraine meddling in 2016. The Democrats downplay, nor outright deny, the many indications that Ukrainians actually did meddle in the election, a shocking about-face for people who for three years argued that foreign election meddling was an intolerable crime that threatened the heart of our democracy. While the brazen suddenness of this U-turn is jarring, this denial is a necessary part of their argument. After all, if there actually were indications of Ukraine election meddling, and if foreign election meddling is a dire threat, then President Trump would have a perfectly good reason 
for wanting to find out what happened. And since the meddling was aimed against his campaign, he'd have good reason for sending his personal attorney to make inquiries about it. What's strange is that some of the witnesses at these hearings and previous depositions who express alarm about these inquiries were remarkably uninformed about these indications of Ukrainian election meddling and why the president may have been concerned by them. For example, I noted previously, Alexander Chalupa, a former staffer for the Democratic National Committee, admitted to Politico that she worked with officials at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C. to dig up church on the Trump campaign, which she passed on to the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Chalupa revealed that Ukrainian embassy officials themselves were also working directly with reporters to trade information and leads about the Trump campaign. Ambassador Kent, you didn't seem to be too concerned about, about it in the last round of questioning, so I'll just skip you because we know that wasn't a concern. Uh, but Ambassador Taylor, you testified to this committee that you only recently became aware of reports of this cooperation between Ukrainian embassy officials and Chalupa to undermine the Trump campaign. From your last deposition, is that correct? Uh, Mr. Innes, it is correct that I had not known about this before. That's just going over your last deposition. That's exactly right, Ambassador. Yep. The Politico article cites three named Ukrainian officials asserting that the Ukrainian embassy supported the Hillary Clinton campaign. It quotes Ukrainian parliamentarian Andrei Artemenko saying, quote, it was clear they were supporting Hillary Clinton's candidacy. They did everything from organizing meetings with the Clinton team to publicly supporting her to criticizing Trump. I think that they simply did, didn't meet with the Trump campaign because they thought Hillary would win, unquote. Ambassador Taylor, you testified you were unfamiliar with that statement. Is that correct? That's correct. You also said you were unaware that then Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., Valerie Chalet, wrote an op-ed in The Hill during the 2016 presidential campaign criticizing then-candidate Trump. Is that correct? That is correct. You said you did not know that Sergei Leshenko, then a Ukrainian parliamentarian, had admitted that part of his motivation in spreading information about the so-called Black Ledger, a disputed document purporting to reveal corruption by a former Trump campaign official, was to undermine the Trump's candidacy. This was in your deposition. Is that still correct? That is still correct, sir. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. Fusion GPS contractor Nellie Orr testified to Congress that Leshenko was a source for Fusion GPS's operation to dirty up the Trump campaign, including the compilation of the Steele dossier on behalf of the DNC and the Clinton campaign. You testified you were unaware that Leshenko served as a source for that project. Ambassador Taylor, is this still correct? It is, sir. You said you did not know that Ukrainian Internal Affairs Minister Arsan Avakov mocked and disparaged then-candidate Trump on Facebook and Twitter. Is that still correct? That is correct. Ambassador Taylor, in your testimony to this committee, you said you were never briefed on these reports and statements, uh, that you did not do due diligence before taking your post to discover that president, the president's and Mayor Giuliani's concerns may have been 
and that you did what they may have been, and that you did not discuss them with Ambassador Ivanovich. That's still correct. Yes, sir. Furthermore, you said it upset you to hear about the many indications of Ukrainian election meddling. Your precise words were, I'm going to read them back to you, based on this political article, which again surprises me, disappoints me, because I think it's a mistake for any diplomat or government official in one country to interfere in the political life of another. That's disappointing, unquote. Pastor Taylor, is that still your testimony? Mr. Jones, it is. Uh, subsequent to that, um, I looked into the circumstances for several of the things that you just uh, mentioned. Um, in 2016, uh, candidate Trump had made a statement um, saying that it was possible that uh, he would allow Crimea to go back to Russia, um, he expressed that he expressed the, the sentiment um, or the opinion uh, that it was possible that Crimea wanted to go back to Russia. What I can tell you, Mr. Nunes, is that those that sentiment is amazingly inflammatory to all Ukrainians. Um, so, so I think, so I can understand that. Uh, are you aware uh, during the, I believe it was the 2012 uh, election when uh, at the time President Obama leaned over on a hot mic to the then Russian president and said that he'd have to wait till after the election? Uh, did that, was that inflammatory to the Ukrainians also? I don't know, sir. I just want to be clear that some government officials opposed President Trump's approach to Ukraine, but many had no idea what concerned him. In this case, it was numerous indications of Ukrainian, Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election to oppose his campaign and support Hillary Clinton. Once you know that, it's easy to understand the president's desire to get to the bottom of this corruption and to discover exactly what happened in the 2016 election. And with that, I'll turn to Mr. Castro. Ambassador Taylor, Mr. Kent, uh, President Trump's concerns about Ukraine's role in the 2016 election, you believe he, he genuinely believed they were working against him, right? Ambassador Taylor? Mr. Castro, I, I don't know what <clears throat> President or candidate Trump um, was thinking about the Ukrainian. I mean, didn't he in this in this uh, Oval Office meeting on May 23rd after the, the Zelensky inauguration? Didn't he didn't he lament that the Ukrainians were out to get him? I heard that his response to the suggestion um, <clears throat> that Mr. Zelensky visit Mr. Trump, President Trump, in the Oval Office um, um, was not well received and that he had concerns about Ukrainians, yes. But from the president's perspective, if, if the ambassador, the Ukraine, Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, one of the most influential diplomats, um, is, is penning an op-ed, um, certainly with the okay of President Poroshenko, um, the, this, the DNC consultants are, are, are conferring 
with Ukrainian officials at the embassy. Uh, former Prime Minister Yatsenyak is saying things on social media. Uh, Interior Minister Avakov, who has uh, spanned both the Poroshenko and the Zelensky uh, realm, is also saying some very unkind things on social media about the president. Um, you certainly can appreciate that President Trump was very concerned that some elements of the Ukrainian establishment were not in favor of him, did not support him, and were out to get him. If I go to, and I'll, I'll allow the question, but um, are you are asking? Really, are you, are, are, are you seriously interrupting our time? I, I'll allow the question. I won't. I won't dock this from the time. Um, I just want to be clear, Ambassador. If you're able to verify the things that counsel has asked you and the prerequisites of the question, that's fine. Otherwise, in questions from the majority or the minority that may assume facts not in evidence before you, uh, you should be cautioned about that. Mr. Chairman, point of order. The time is with uh, Mr. Uh, with Minority Counsel. Uh, Mr. Ratcliffe. Chairman, um, I sat here through the first 45 minutes and literally had an objection to almost the foundation of every question that Mr. Goldman asked regarding facts not in evidence, leading. But House Resolution 660 does not say that we, under, we are under the federal rules of evidence. If it is your position that I should be asserting objections to questions that violate the federal rules of evidence, I'm not adding my commentary to it. I'm going to let it play out and let you people decide that's what I'm doing. Because um, some people say, oh, Jack finna say something so dissuaded. No. Y'all listen to it and y'all come up with your own conclusion. But it's, let me know now because this hearing is going to change significantly. As I said, Mr. Radcliffe, I will allow the question. I think the gentleman has a different question uh, about the rules. So what are the rules that are going to govern this? Does the ranking member seek recognition? I'm, I'm asking, I'm yielding you for a question, to the question I just asked you. For what purpose do you seek recognition? To answer Mr. Radcliffe's question. I have answered it. May no, I your question? Respectfully, Mr. Chairman, um, you haven't answered my question whether or not I should be asserting assumes facts not in evidence or leading uh, objections to questions that are posed from this point forward. That's my question. Mr. Ratcliffe, so once again, I'm not objecting to the question, but I am instructing the witness that they should not presume questions from the majority or the minority that may represent facts not in evidence uh, are correct. Um, this is, I have, I have uh, answered the question. We will resume the questioning and resume the clock. So you certainly can appreciate President Trump's concerns. Ms. Kester, um, I, I don't know the exact nature of President Trump's concerns. Um, I had, I, in, in my deposition, I recall you handed me the political article, um, which listed at least three of the, of the elements that you have described earlier. And I, you've recognized and I have confirmed with, with the ranking minority member um, that, that I, I, it's first I'd heard of those and was surprised by those. I don't know, I don't know President Trump's reaction to those. In the information published by uh, Sergei Leshenko, um, 
former Ukrainian investigative journalist, and then he was a member of the parliament, about the Manafort Black Ledgers in August of 2016. Um, I mean, the very day that was published, uh, Mr. Manafort uh, resigned from the campaign, correct? I don't know, Mr. Kessler. Um But certainly that gives rise to some concern that there are elements of the Ukrainian establishment that were out to get the president. That's a very reasonable uh, belief of his. Correct? I, I don't know. Um, the, you know. The run up to the, the 2016 election, um, there's, there's many facts that remain unresolved. Agreed? I'm sorry, what's the question? There are many facts relating to the run up of the 2016 election that remain unresolved. Any further? Uh, well, Attorney General Barr in, in, in May of 2019 tasked the U.S. Attorney for Connecticut, John Durham, um, to broadly examine the government's collection of intelligence involving the president's campaign. That uh, effort, initially was an administrative uh, review, has turned into a criminal probe. And, and U.S. Attorney uh, Durham is, is casting a wide net and is, is following the facts where they may lead. Are you aware of that? I'm aware that there is an investigation. That's as much as I'm aware. And so to the extent any information mm -hmm. resides in, in Ukraine, it's perfectly appropriate for the Ukrainians to try to get to the bottom of that, for the Ukrainians to cooperate with, with the United States through official channels to, to share that information, correct? Ms. Kessler, can you say that one again? I'd, I'd be appreciated if you restate the question. To the extent Ukraine has facts related to the run-up of the 2016 election that are under uh, um, the U.S. Attorney Durham's probe, Ukraine should, should cooperate with the United States, and to the extent there are Ukrainians doing uh, improper things, the Ukrainians ought to investigate that themselves, correct? Ms. Kester, uh, the Ukrainian-American relations um, are, are very supportive. The Ukrainians will, will certainly uh, be responsive to requests. So when the president on the call transcript of July 25th raises this with President Zelensky, and he, he urges that there be a connection between um, the Ukrainian government and, and the Justice Department officially, I mean, that's the appropriate way to raise an issue with the Ukrainian president, correct? It's appropriate for the, the Justice Department and the uh, Prosecutor General to cooperate and to ex exchange information, yes. But to the extent the president has concerns and to the extent the Attorney General is, is having U.S. Attorney Durham look into that, isn't it entirely appropriate for the president to flag this for President Zelensky? And, and say that you should be in touch with our official channels? <clears throat> Ms. Kessler, I don't know the precise um, uh, appropriateness of these kinds of uh, relations. Now, were you involved, either of you involved with the preparation for the 725 call? I was not. I was not. And how do you account for that? I mean, you're the, you, you, you are the two of the key officials with responsibility for Ukrainian policy. Uh, I mean, if the President of the United States is going to have a call with the leader of the Ukraine, why, why wouldn't you ordinarily be involved with the preparation? Sir, we work for the Department of State and an embassy overseas, and in preparation for a presidential phone call, that responsibility lies within the staff of the National Security Council. Normally, if there is enough sufficient time, National Security staff can solicit information, usually from the State Department, and we can draw on the embassy, but that's only background information, and my understanding, having never worked at the National Security Council, is that National Security staff write a memo to the president, and none of us see that outside of the National Security staff. Okay, so the, 
the uh, the charge or the the U.S. ambassador to the country wouldn't ordinarily be on a call with a foreign leader. That's correct. Would not. Um, and did Colonel Vindman or anyone at the National Security Council staff uh, reach out to you, Mr. Kent, in preparation for the call? I w was given notification the day before on July 24th. Uh, and to the extent I had any role, it was to reach out to the embassy, give them the heads up, and ask them to ensure that the secure communications link in the office of the President of Ukraine was functional so the call could be patched through from the White House Situation Room. Did you provide any, any uh, substantive uh, advice to, to Colonel Vindman about, about the call and what ought to be the, the official position? I was not asked, and I did not provide it. Okay. Same with you, Ambassador? The same. And the call was scheduled, you know, you testified earlier that the call was on again and off again. And uh, after the July 10th meeting with Ambassador Bolton, uh, the consensus was the call was not going to happen. Is that correct? I would not say that was a consensus. The State Department's position was that a call between the two presidents would be useful. And once uh, Zelensky's party won the first ever absolute majority in parliamentary elections on July 21st, the idea of a congratulatory call made eminent sense from our perspective. Okay, and the call was scheduled. Um, and did you get a readout, Ambassador Taylor, initially from the call? <clears throat> I didn't, Mr. Kessler. I read the, we all read the statement that the Ukrainians put out. Um, I got a readout several days later from uh, Mr. Morrison, uh, National Security Council. Okay. And how about you, Mr. Kent? Uh, I likewise first saw the Ukrainian statement, and I believe the next day, July 26th, which would have been a Friday, uh, I did get a partial readout from mm -hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Vidman. Yes. Um, Ambassador Taylor, you, you said that the Ukrainian readout was cryptic. Is that just because it's initially written in Ukrainian and translated to the U.S.? Uh, no, it's, uh, as a general rule, both United States and other countries, including Ukraine, will put out very short summaries that kind of hit the highlights okay. of, the, of the discussion, but without going into detail. Okay. And you mentioned it was cryptic. Why did you think it was cryptic? Knowing now what, having read the transcript <clears throat> and looking back at their summary, um, as I recall, I don't recall the exact uh, words, but they said that there were uh, issues to be pursued in order to improve relations between the two countries or something like that. That seems pretty ordinary. It seems pretty ordinary. Um, you were with President Zelensky the very next day? We were. We had a meeting with him the very next day. And did President Zelensky raise any concerns about his views of the call? He said, uh, so, right, so uh, I, Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Sondland were uh, in his office, and we asked him, I think, how the call, he said, call was fine. I, I was happy with the call. Okay. And did you get any additional readouts subsequently of the call? Like, when did you first learn that the, um, the call contained things that concerned you? Was that not until September 25th? Um, Mr. Uh, Morrison, um, as I say, briefed me several days later, 
um, before the end of July. Um, and he, I think this is where I said in my testimony that he said it could have gone better. Um, and he, he said it mentioned that the call mentioned uh, Mr. Giuliani. He also said that the call mentioned uh, the former ambassador. Though, both of those were concerning. Giuliani was first raised on the call by President Zelensky, correct? I don't recall. Okay. It, um, could, it could have been. Well, I, well I, have, I have it here if you'd like. Yeah, it's on page, um, Very good. page three. The first mention of Giuliani is from President Zelensky. It's on page three. Um, and, and President Zelensky says, I will personally tell you that one of my assistants spoke with Mr. Giuliani just recently, and we are hoping very much that Mr. Giuliani will be able to travel to Ukraine, and we will meet once he comes to Ukraine. Did that surprise you? Again, I didn't have the transcript at the time. All I heard was that, that Giuliani was mentioned, Mr. Morrison said that Giuliani was mentioned in the, in the call. But the way Zelensky states it here, it sounds like he is very much looking forward to speaking with uh, America's mayor. That, that's what I found out when I read the transcript on the mm -hmm. 25th of September or so. Okay. Now, um, Mr. Kent, uh, corruption in Ukraine is endemic, correct? That's correct. And it affects the, the courts, the prosecutors, and, and there have historically been problems with um, all the prosecutors in Ukraine, correct? I would say up until the new set of prosecutors uh, appointed by President Zelensky in the last two months, correct. Okay, and so the, the U.S. government, the consensus hope at the State Department and the National Security Council and the White House is that Zelensky's the real deal. He's a real reformer. He's genuinely interested in rooting out corruption, prosecuting the bad guys, correct? I would say we are cautiously optimistic and we will work wherever there is the political will mm -hmm. to do the right thing and uh, put forward genuine reform. And at the heart of the corruption is this oligarchical, oligarchical system, correct? Where, where um, the oligarchs take control uh, often by a virtual theft of um, you know, for example, the, the right to uh, certain energy licenses, correct? That is one element, yes, sir. And the, um, the company Burisma, uh, its, it's um, leader, Sochevsky, he has a, a little bit of a storied history of corruption, doesn't he? Uh, Mr. Zlochevsky was Minister of Energy from 2010-2012 under the pro-Russian government, and he used his regulatory authority to award uh, gas exploration licenses to companies that he himself controlled. That would be considered an act of corruption in my view, yes. And certainly self-dealing. Certainly self-dealing and self-enriching. And how did the Ukrainian government ultimately pursue that? In the spring of 2014, the Ukrainian government, the new government after the Revolution of Dignity, turned to partners, particularly the US and the UK, to try to recover tens of billions of dollars of stolen assets. The first case that we tried to recover that money came from Mr. Zlachevsky. Serious Crimes Office in the UK had already opened up an investigation. They worked with us and the Ukrainian authorities to develop more information. The, the $23 million was frozen until somebody in the General Prosecutor's Office of Ukraine shut the case, issued a letter to his lawyer, and that money went poof. So essentially paid a bribe to make the case go away. That is our strong assumption, yes, sir. Okay. Now, at any point in time, has, has any, anyone in the Ukrainian government tried to reinvestigate that, or did, that, did those crimes just go 
unpunished, and was he free to go? Uh, Mr. Zlochevsky spent time, as far as I understand, in, in Moscow and Monaco after he fled Ukraine. Uh, we continued to raise as a point of order that because U.S. taxpayer dollars had been used to try to recover frozen assets, uh, that we have a fiduciary responsibility, uh, and we continued to press Ukrainian officials uh, to answer for why alleged corrupt prosecutors had closed a case, uh, and we have, uh, till now, not gotten a satisfactory answer. So, to summarize, we thought that Mokola Zlochevsky had stolen money, we thought a prosecutor had taken a bribe to shut the case, and those were our main concerns. And are you in favor of that matter being fully investigated and prosecuted? I think since U.S. taxpayer dollars were wasted, I would love to see the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's office find who the corrupt prosecutor was that took the bribe and how much it was paid. And that's what I said to the Deputy Prosecutor General on February 3rd, 2015. But in addition to prosecuting the person that took the bribes, shouldn't the organization or individual that sponsored the bribes be prosecuted? I would agree that the Ukrainian law authorities should uphold the rule of law and hold people account for breaking Ukrainian law. So this, this company, Burisma, involved in lots, lots of criminal activity, correct? I do not know that. But over the years, it's been involved in, in a number of questionable dealings, correct? I would say that it's the largest private gas producer in the country, and its business reputation is mixed. Um, so to the extent a new regime is coming in under President Zelensky, it certainly would be fair for the, the new prosecutor, a genuine prosecutor, to, to re-examine old crimes that hadn't sufficiently been brought to justice, right? I believe that the new prosecutor general, Ruslan Rybashapka, made a statement to that uh, and that they would be reviewing uh, past cases. But keep in mind, this is a country where those that commit crimes generally never get held to account, so there's a lot to review. Okay, now this, um, the, the bribe was paid in what year? To the best of my knowledge, the case against Zlochevsky, the former minister, was shut down December of 2014. Okay, and right around that time, Burisma starts uh, adding uh, officials to its board, is that correct? Understanding is, yes, that uh, Zlochevsky invited uh, a series of new individuals to join the board in 2014. And do you know what his strategy was in adding officials to his board? I have never met Mr. Zlochevsky. Okay, and who are some of the folks he added to the board? Uh, the most prominent person he added to the board was the former president of Poland, Alexander Kwasniewski. And anyone else? There were a number of others, including some Americans, and uh, the most prominent one in this context is Hunter Biden. Okay, so Hunter Biden's added to the board of Burisma. Now, do you think that creates a, a, a problem that Burisma may be adding people to its board for protection purposes? Uh, sir, I work for the government. I don't work in the corporate sector, and so I believe that companies build their boards uh, with a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. uh, not only to promote their business plans. Was, was Hunter Biden a, a corporate governance expert? I have no idea what Hunter Biden studied at the university or what his CV says. Like, is he the, the Jeffrey Sonnenfeld of, of the Ukraine? Uh, I have no uh, awareness or knowledge of what his background was and what he may have done on the border. Okay, so you don't know whether he has any um, business experience in Ukraine prior to joining Burisma's board? I, I've heard nothing about prior experience. Okay, do you know if he speaks Ukrainian? I do not. You know, if he uh, possesses any other element other than the fact that he is the son of, at the time, the sitting vice president. 
I do not. Okay. Ambassador Taylor, do you know whether Hunter Biden offers anything other than the fact that his dad's the former vice president? I, I don't. Or at the time was the vice president? I have no knowledge of uh, Hunter Biden. But you would agree it raises questions, right? He was getting paid, I think, $50,000 a month to, to sit on the board. Did you know if he relocated to Ukraine? Do you know if Hunter Biden relocated to Ukraine? No knowledge. Do you know, Mr. Kent? Again, no knowledge. Okay. So he, he's getting paid $50,000 a month, but we don't know whether he had any experience, he had any, um, he spoke the language, or whether he moved to Ukraine, correct? Correct. $50,000 a month? Hell, I'll take that damn job. I'll just sit there and be a good nigga. For $50,000 a month, you damn right I'll be on there for $50,000 a month. What y'all want me to say? They say, Jack, we just want you to sit your black ass over there in that damn corner and sip on that cognac. And I say, yes, sir. For $50,000 a month, you damn right I'll do it. Hunter Biden, you got it easy. Till you popped in that little Arkansas girl's pussy. Now you're going to be on the paternity test. And if your dad damn the daddy, you're going to be paying child support. Now at this time, Vice President Biden was taking a specific interest in Ukraine, wasn't he? He was. And could you tell us about that? I believe uh, while he was vice president, he made a total of six visits to Ukraine. One may have been during the old regime, Yanukovych, and that would make five visits after the Revolution of Dignity, which started February 2014. Okay, and you were the, the DCM, the Deputy Chief of Mission at this time, at the time, correct? Uh, starting in 2015, yes. Okay. And did Vice President Biden come when you were when you were at post? He did not. I came back for Ukrainian language training, and so I missed several uh, okay. visits. Now, you've seen Vice President Biden's, um, his, he's sort of given a, um, a, a speech, and he's, uh, you know, a little folksy about how he went into Ukraine and he told uh, the Ukrainians that if they don't fire the prosecutor, they're going to lose their $1 billion in loan guarantees. You've seen that, correct? I have. I think it was a speech at the Council of Foreign Relations in January 2018. Right. And he also said that he's been there, you know, Ukraine 13 times. Do you know if that's accurate? To the best of my knowledge, when he was vice president, he made six visits. And did uh, the State Department ever express any concerns to the vice president's office that the vice president's role at the time in, in engaging on Ukraine presented any issues? No, the vice president's role was critically important. It was top cover to help us pursue our policy agenda. Okay, but given Hunter Biden's role in Brisbane's board of directors, at some point you testified in your deposition that you expressed some concern to the vice president's office. Is that correct? That is correct. And what did they do about that concern that you expressed? Uh, I have no idea. I reported my concern to the office of the vice president. Okay, and that was the end of it? That nobody... I, sir, I, you would have to ask people who worked in the office of the vice president uh, during 2015. But after you expressed the concern of a, a perceived conflict of interest at the least, um, the vice president's engagement in Ukraine didn't decrease, did it? Correct, because the vice president was promoting U.S. policy objectives in Ukraine. And Hunter Biden's role on the board of Burisma didn't cease, did it? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it didn't. And my concern was that there was uh, the possibility of a perception of a conflict of interest. 
Now, um, Ambassador Taylor, I want to turn to the uh, discussion of the irregular channel you, you described. Um, and, and in fairness, this, this irregular channel of diplomacy, um, it's not as outlandish as it could be. Is that correct? It's not as outlandish as it could be. Yeah, I, I agree, Mr. Uh, okay, we have Ambassador Volker, who's a former Senate-confirmed uh, ambassador to NATO, longtime State Department diplomat. And, and you've known Ambassador Volker for years, correct? That's correct. A man of, of unquestioned integrity, correct? That's correct. And uh, somebody with incredible knowledge of the region. With very good knowledge of the region. Yes. And the best interests of the United States. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And the best interests of Ukraine. His first priority is clearly the United States. Okay. Uh, and to the extent that uh, Ukraine has an implication uh, for that, yes. Okay. Ukraine as well. And the second member of the regular channel is Ambassador uh, Sondland, uh, who is Senate confirmed, Ambassador to the EU. Um, so his involvement here, while um, you know not necessarily part of his official duties as the ambassador to the EU, it certainly is not outlandish for him to be interested and engaged um, pursuant to the president or Secretary Pompeo's direction. Correct. It's a little unusual for the U.S. ambassador to the EU to play a role uh, in Ukraine policy. Okay. And you know it might be irregular, but it's certainly not outlandish. And then Secretary Perry is the third member of the Irregular Channel, um, certainly a um, you know, Senate-confirmed official, somebody with deep experience in energy markets, and he was pursuing some you know, liquefied national, uh, natural gas projects in Ukraine? That's correct, Mr. Castro. So his involvement, Secretary Perry's involvement, is perfectly acceptable? It is. Okay. Now, this, this Irregular channel as it developed, um, when did you determine that it became problematic? I mean, you, you, in your opening statement, identified yourself uh, appropriately as the, the, um, the leader of the regular channel. At least a participant. There's another leader of the, of the regular channel. <clears throat> so when did you first develop concerns that the, the irregular channel was, was being problematic? So I arrived in, in Kiev in mid-September. By late September, a couple of phone calls uh, uh, with... You arrived in Kiev in June, right? Uh, June, sorry. Was that, yeah, sorry. June, June, June 17th? Mid-June. Mid, mid yeah. June 17th, thank you. Um, and so by the end of June, um, I had begun to hear references to investigations as something that would have to happen prior to the meeting that, that President Trump had offered to President Zelensky. Okay. And now, th that began to raise questions for me. Okay. Now, now you, you've known Ambassador Volker, and you certainly um, have a, a reason to know Ambassador Sondland. What did you do at this point, or did you ever try to wrest control of the irregular channel? I, I didn't try to wrest control of the irregular channel to do that. Um, at the time, when I... Well, why, not, why not, though, if you, if you because, have concerns? Because, Ms. Castro, uh, at the time, as, as uh, Ambassador Kent, no, Deputy Assistant Secretary Kent um, uh, testified, 
both channels, both of those, both channels were interested in having a meeting between President Zelensky and President Trump. So we, we're, there's no reason to kind of wrest control uh, if okay. we're going in the same direction. But at some point, you you develop concerns. I mean, your opening statement is, is, is here. I mean, you're the impeachment uh, witness number one, and you're number two, Mr. Kent. You know, for, for the case impeaching the President of the United States, because of the concerns, you've testified about the irregular channel, correct? I was concerned when the irregular channel appeared to be going against the overall, the irregular channel was going against the overall direction of and purpose of the regular channel. So and as yes. I understand the record, however, you, you, when you arrived in Ukraine, you had the support of the secretary and the secretary's top advisor, counselor, Ulrich Brechtbuehl, correct? That is correct. And they, they, they assured you that if you had any concerns, you would be able to contact them, and they would have your back. That is, that is correct. And, and you knew going in that the, the Rudy Giuliani element presented some complexities, correct? I was concerned about Rudy Giuliani's uh, statements um, and involvement in the Ukraine policy, yes. Okay, so w when it genuinely became you know, a concern for you, what, what did you do to either engage Sondland and Volker and Perry, Giuliani. By the way, have you ever met Rudy Giuliani in, in these, during these times relevant? Not during the times relevant. He visited, Mr. Giuliani visited Ukraine one time when I was there, I think in 2007 or 8. Okay. Uh, that's the only time I've met him. Okay. So you've never had any, any, any communications with Rudy Giuliani um, as, as part of these irregular channel business? That's correct. That's correct. Um, and, and anyway, getting back to my, my question, did you try to engage uh, Breck Buell or the secretary uh, you know, during this time period? I know you said that you, you had, I believe, an uh, August 21st or 22nd telephone call with, with Breck Buell. You had a July 10th telephone call with Breck Buell, and then you sent a first-person cable to the secretary on August 29th. That's correct. Is that, the, is that sort of the universe of initiatives you took inside the State Department to raise your concerns about the regular channel? I also raised my concerns with uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, George Kent. Um, uh, in particular, early on when there, I think I may have mentioned this phone call that, uh, that was odd in that it did not include the normal staff, uh, indeed, Ambassador Sondland's staff, uh, uh, and that struck me as unusual. Um, I consulted with, uh, with Mr. Kent, uh, and at his suggestion, made a note uh, of this, and also had, I think at that point, I had a conversation with Mr. Breckfield. That was a June 28th call, I believe? That's correct. Um, and in your opening statement, you expressed some concerns about what Ambassador Sondland had said. But then once Zelensky got on the phone, it proceeded very uh, in a very regular channel way, correct? That's correct. Okay. So the June 28th call, at least in and of itself, didn't ultimately, as it played out, present any problems for you? The call with President Zelensky did not. The preparation for that call, uh, the preparation included maybe 15 minutes of just the United, just the Americans mm -hmm. that would stay on the call. Right. 
And that, again, that was a little irregular in that it didn't have the staff. It was also in that, in that pre-call, in that 15 minutes, uh, before President Zelensky got on the phone, where Ambassador Volker um, told the rest of the participants that he was planning to uh, have a conversation with President Zelensky in Toronto in three days, four days, um, where he would outline for President Zelensky the, the important components of the phone call that we were trying to uh, establish. Okay. And you didn't have any issue with that, did you? The only issue I had with that, Mr. Castro, was um, uh, there was reference um, to investigations um, in, I believe this is, I'll have to check my notes on that, but that, there, there was, there was uh, raised issues for me uh, that I didn't understand what Ambassador Volker had in mind that he was specifically going to raise with Mr. Zelensky. Uh, that was a little bit of a concern. Okay. Um, I mean, the President's expressed his, you know, interest in, in certain investigations, certainly re related to the 2016 election, and relating to either this, this corrupt uh, Burisma outfit. So that wasn't inconsistent with the president's message, right? Uh, I'm not sure, Mr. Cashin. Maybe, can I ask you to repeat the question? The, um, the president's concerns about the 2016 election and needing to get to the bottom of it, and, and the, the president's concerns is it ultimately related to the the Burisma company. I mean, if Ambassador Volker is raising that with with, with Zelensky, that that's consistent with the direction of the president, correct? The the president's interest, or I would say Mr. Giuliani's interest, because that's what we were that that's what was very clear um, at the time. Uh, Mr. Giuliani's interest in pursuing these investigations. Mm -hmm. Um, was a was a concern, but uh, yeah. By the way, do you know how many times Volker met with Giuliani? I don't. How many would you guess? Is it was he talking to him all the time or meeting with him all the time? Mr. Kessler, I, I don't know. Okay. From his de you know his deposition, he told us just once. And, you know, he, he texted back and forth with um, with the mayor, uh, and it had a call or two, but it wasn't a pervasive. Uh, engagement for, for Ambassador Volker. Were you aware of that? I was not aware. I was aware of one breakfast, I think. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the only one that I was aware of. And Mr. Kent, before my time expires, I want to circle back to um, the company of Burisma. And you, you testified at your deposition that there was an instance where USAID had engaged with Burisma and possibly sponsoring a, um, a program. And you... I took issue with that and recommended USAID to pull back from that. Could you tell us about that? So I became aware in the summer, I believe, of 2016 that as a part of what I th recall was a clean energy uh, awareness campaign, uh, the part of the USAID mission that worked on uh, economics and governance, uh, including energy, had sponsored a some sort of contest for young Ukrainians to come up with a theme, and there was a prize. I believe it may have been a camera. And they had co-sponsored, and uh, with public-private partnership being a buzzword, uh, a, a, having a co-sponsorship with Burisma. Uh, given the past history of our uh, in 
interest in recovering stolen assets from Zlochevsky, it was my view that it was inappropriate for the embassy to be co-sponsoring uh, a contest with Burisma. I raised that with the mission director at the embassy. She agreed, and the USAID mission uh, kept the contest but dropped the public-private partnership uh, sponsorship. The time of the gentleman has expired. Uh, we'll now move to five-minute member rounds. I recognize myself for five minutes. Uh, Mr. Kent, I want to follow up on my colleagues' questions uh, regarding Burisma. You testified about a time when uh, an oligarch named Zlicheski, I think it was, was self-dealing, awarding himself contracts. Uh, when was that? To the best of my knowledge, he was Minister of Energy, uh, sorry, Minister of Ecology under President Yanukovych from 2010 to 2012. And at the time, licenses to have substrata uh, exploration of gas were awarded by a subdivision of the Ministry of Ecology. So this corrupt self-dealing then was approximately seven years, at least seven years before the events that bring us here today, the phone call on the 25th and the events around it? Correct. His time as minister was uh, 2010 to 2012. Uh, Hunter Biden joined the board of Brisbane in 2014. And you've read the call transcript, have you not? I have, and I have it in front of me, but I haven't read it for about a month. Is there any mention in the discussion um, with President Trump and President Zelensky of this oligarch, Zlochevsky, who seven years earlier had been self-dealing? To the best of my knowledge, no. Um, is there a discussion of awarding contracts to oneself or the corrupt acts in the 2012 to 2014 time frame? To the best of my knowledge, no. Now, what the President brings up is CrowdStrike, the server, and the Bidens, am I right? Uh, that's, I see that here, yes. There was no discussion on that call of setting up an anti-corruption court or looking into corruption among oligarchs or companies in general. The president's comments were focused on two things, 2016 and the Bidens, am I right? I believe so, yes. Now, you testified uh, in your opening statement, I do not believe the United States should ask other countries to engage in selective politically associated investigations or prosecutions against opponents of those in power. Because such selective actions undermine the rule of law regardless of the country. The selective politically associated investigations or prosecutions against opponents of those in power, are you referring to the Bidens there? I'm referring as a general principle about the promotion of the rule of law. But that would apply to the President of the United States seeking an investigation of his political opponent, would it not? It could be interpreted that way, yes, sir. And I take it uh, in your discussions of Ambassador Taylor with Ambassador Sondland uh, or others, what was communicated to you was that the president wanted investigations into 2016 and the Bidens, not into an oligarch named Zilicheski or self-dealing, but 2016 and the Bidens. Was that your understanding? That was my understanding. And in fact, when you said your staff overheard this call between Ambassador Sondland and the president, in that call, the president brings up Investigation, does he not? He did. And immediately after the president gets off the phone with Sondland, Sondland is asked by your staff, 
what does the president think about Ukraine? And his answer is, he's just interested in the Bidens, am I right? He said he was more interested in the Bidens. More interested in the Bidens. No discussion of Zlachewski or Chalupa or things that happened seven years ago. He was interested in the Bidens. Yes, sir. Now, I think you also testified that Ambassador Sondland told you that President Trump wanted Zelensky in a public box. Is that right? Yes, sir. And by public box, did that mean that private statements, private promises to do this investigation of 2016 of the Bidens were not enough? He had to go on TV. He had to go public in some way because the president wanted him in that box. Is that your understanding? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I don't know exactly what he had in mind, and I'm not sure what Ambassador Sondland had in mind, who was the one who mentioned that to me. Uh, that's the implication. The implication was it needed to be public as opposed to being a private assurance. Um, and I think you said in that same call, you asked Ambassador Sondland to push back on President Trump's demand. Is that right? That's correct, sir. So you understood from your conversation with Sondland, this was the president's demand, not Sondland's demand, the president's demand and you wanted someone to push back, am I right? Uh, what I wanted to, so Ambassador Sondland uh, was, was clearly able to have conversations with the president, um, and I thought that the pressure on another president, on President Zelensky, was not a good idea from either president's standpoint. So suggest, I suggested in that phone call to, uh, with, with Ambassador Sondland, that he, since he regular or frequently had conversations with the president, could make that point. Well, and I think the way you express yourself is you wanted Sondland to push back on President Trump's demand, right? Yes, sir. So as you understand from talking to Sondland, this is what the president wanted him, wanted him to do, and you wanted Sondland to push back. I asked Ambassador uh, Sondland to push back. That's correct. And in fact, even after the aid was ultimately released. Even after the White House learns of the whistleblower complaint and the congressional investigation, the aid is released, even after those events, you were still worried that Zelensky was going to feel it necessary to go on CNN and announce these investigations, were you not? Mr. Chairman, I was still worried that he might do that. Um, uh, so yes, I, I thought that would be a bad idea. And so when there was some indication that there might still be a plan for the CNN interview in New York, which was upcoming at the, at, at the United Nations General Assembly meeting, I was worried, I wanted to be sure that that didn't happen, so I addressed it with the, with the Zelensky staff. And I think you said earlier that Dan Liuk, the National Security Advisor then for Zelensky, was concerned Zelensky didn't want to be used as some tool in American politics, is that right? That's correct, sir. Um, so Zelensky didn't want to go on TV to announce political investigations that he thought would mire him in U.S. politics, right? He knew that he and his advisors knew that it's a bad idea to in, interject, to interfere in other other nations' elections, yes. But, but nonetheless, it appeared until the aid was lifted, the hold was lifted, that he felt compelled to do it. He was making plans, uh, his staff was making plans to have him make some kind of announcement, I don't know what it would have been, um, on CNN in, in public. Even though he didn't want to be marred in U.S. politics? Even though he knew it was a bad idea to interfere in other people's elections? 
Mr. Nunes, you are recognized uh, for seven minutes and 10 seconds. Thank the gentleman for that. Uh, Ambassador Taylor, you said in your deposition that the first time you heard about this issue with Rudy Giuliani, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but you read it in the New York Times. Is that correct? I, I do remember that at first, uh, I do remember noticing about uh, Mr. Giuliani being involved in this in that, in that article, yes sir. Okay. I think one of the mothers of all conspiracy theories is that somehow the President of the United States would want a country that he doesn't even like, he doesn't want to give foreign aid to, to have the Ukrainians start an investigation into Biden's. With that, I yield to Mr. Jordan. Thank the gentleman for yielding. Ambassador Taylor, thank you for being here. Um, AIDS held up on July 18th, is that right? That's when I first heard about it, uh, Mr. Then it's, then it's released, Ambassador Taylor, on September 11th. And we know that from your deposition, in those 55 days that aid is delayed, you met with President Zelensky three times. The first one was July 26th, the day after the famous call down between President Trump and President Zelensky. President Zelensky meets with you, Ambassador Volker, and Ambassador Sondland. And again, according to your deposition and your testimony, there was no linkage of security assistance dollars to investigating Burisma or the Bidens. Second meeting is August 27th. Again, in this 55-day time frame, second meeting is August 27th. President Zelensky meets with you and Ambassador Bolton and others. And again, there's no linkage of dollars, security assistance dollars, to an investigation of the Bidens. Then, of course, the third meeting is September 5th. President Zelensky meets with you and Senators Johnson and Murphy. And once again, there is no linkage of security assistance dollars to an investigation of Burisma or the Bidens. Three meetings with the president of Ukraine, the new president, and no linkage. That's accurate? Ms. Jordan, certainly accurate on the first two, uh, first two meetings, because to my knowledge, uh, the Ukrainians were not aware of the hold on assistance until until the 29th of August. So the political article. The political article. Um, the, thir the third meeting that you mentioned with the senators, Senator Murphy and Senator Johnson, um, there was discussion of the security assistance, but the uh, linkage. But there was not there was not discussion of linkage. Three meetings face to face with President Zelensky, no linkage. Yet, in your deposition, you said this, and you said it again the first hour of the majority. My clear understanding was security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue the investigation. My clear understanding was they weren't going to get the money until President Zelensky committed to pursue the investigations. Now, with all due respect, Ambassador, your clear understanding was obviously wrong, because it didn't happen. President Zelensky didn't announce he was going to investigate Burisma or the Bidens. He didn't do a press conference and say, I'm going to investigate the Bidens. We're going to investigate Burisma. He didn't tweet about it. And you just told the ranking member he didn't do the CNN interview and announce he's going to investigate Burisma or the Bidens. So three face-to-face -face meetings, it doesn't come up. No linkage whatsoever. President Zelensky doesn't announce it before the aid is released on the 11th. And yet you said you have a clear understanding that those two things were going to happen. The money was going to get released, but not until there was an investigation. And that, in fact, didn't happen. So what I'm wondering is, where did you get this clear understanding? As I testified, Mr. Jordan, uh, this came from Ambassador Sondland. 
Can you no. hold one second, Ambassador? I'm going I'm to bring you a piece of paper from Ambassador Sondland's statement. Very good. And you can take a look at this. Go ahead, though. I'm going to let you finish. So, Mr. Jordan, should I read this? Or? No, no, I, oh. you, I just want you to have it because I'm going to read it. Oh, very good, very good. Very yeah, good. but I want you to go ahead and finish. You said, Ambassador, you got this from Ambassador Sondland. Uh, that is correct. Um, that um, Ambassador Sondland also said that he talked to President Zelensky and Mr. Yermak and had told them that although this was not a quid pro quo, if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. That was, the, that was one point. Um, it was also uh, the case... Mr. Morrison that, talked to you, right? No. Uh, what I can say is that Ambassador Sondland also told me that he recognized that it was a mistake to have told the Ukrainians that only the meeting with the uh, president in the in the Oval Office was held up on the uh, in order to get these investigations. No, it was not just the meeting; it was also the security system. That is everything. So those two, those okay. two discussions. No, I understand. Um, okay. All right. So again, just to just to recap, you had three meetings with President Zelensky. No linkage in those three meetings came up. Ambassador Zelensky didn't announce that he was going to do any investigation of the Bidens of Burismas before the aid was released. He didn't do a tweet, didn't do anything on CNN, didn't do any of that. President Zelensky, excuse me. Um, and then what you have in front of you is an addendum that Mr. Sondland made to his testimony that we got a couple weeks ago. It says, Declaration of Ambassador Gordon Sondland. I, Gordon Sondland, do hereby swear and affirm as follows. I want you to look at point number two, bullet point number two, second sentence. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmack on September 1st, 2019 in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. Now, this is his clarification. Let me read it one more time. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmack on September 1st, 2019 in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. We got six people having four conversations in one sentence, and you just told me this is where you got your clear understanding. Which, I, I mean, even though you had three opportunities with President Zelensky for him to tell you, you know what, we're going to do these investigations to get the aid. Didn't tell you three different times. Never makes an announcement, never tweets about it, never does a CNN interview. Ambassador, you weren't on the call, were you? President, you didn't listen on President Trump's call and President Zelensky's call? I did not. You never talked to Chief of Staff Mulvaney? I never did. You never met the president. That's correct. You had three meetings again with Zelensky and it didn't come up. And two of those they had never heard about as far as I know. The president there was Zelensky, no reason for it. President Zelensky never made an announcement. This, this is what I can't believe. And you're their star witness. You're their first witness. But you're the going, guy. You're the guy based on this. Based on, I mean, I've seen, I've seen church prayer chains that are easier to understand than this. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told, now again, this is, I hereby swear and affirm from Gordon Sondland. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 20. This all happens, by the way. This all happens, by the way, in Warsaw, General where Vice President Pence meets with President Zelensky. And guess Ambassador what? Taylor they didn't expired. talk about any linkage either. Time the gentleman's expired. Ambassador Taylor, would you like to respond? The only response, uh, two responses, uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you, and Mr. Mr. Jordan. Glad to take those questions. Let me just say um, that I don't consider myself a star witness for anything. They do. You know no, that. Uh, I don't. I, I'm just. I'm responding to. Uh, I'm responding to your questions.
this. Um, is I, I, I think I was clear about I'm not here to take one side or the other or to advocate any particular outcome. So let me just re restate that. Second thing is that uh, my understanding is only coming from people that I talk to. We got not, that. Uh, we got that. Um, and um, I think this clarification uh, from, this, uh, from Ambassador Sondland um, was because he said he didn't remember this in, the, in, in his first deposition. So he, he wanted to kind of clarify. But I think, Mr. Jordan, I, the way I read this, he remembers it the same way I do. Yeah, and it's real clear, right? It's Thank very you. clear. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Taylor. Um, Mr. Hunter, can I ask for five minutes? Gentlemen, thank you for your testimony today. One of the things I find startling about these proceedings is that faced with very serious allegations of presidential misconduct, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle don't engage or defend that conduct. Rather, they spin theories about black ledgers and steel dossiers and the startling revelation that Ukrainians might have been upset when a presidential candidate suggested that perhaps he would let the Russians keep Crimea. Or, of course, we get the attacks so epitomized by Mr. Nunes' open statement, opening statement when he attacked Democrats, he attacked the media, and most disgustingly attacked the extraordinary men and women of the State Department and the FBI. When a defense does emerge, it, it looks a little like this. Ukraine is a corrupt country, and the president was just acting in a long line, a long tradition of actually trying to address corruption in Ukraine. Mr. Kent, you've worked on anti-corruption and rule of law efforts for much of your 27-year career, is that correct? I have specialized in anti-corruption and rule of law issues uh, since 2012, correct. So, like, like most of us up here, I don't have a good sense of what a real anti-corruption effort that we must engage in all over the world all the time, what that looks like. So let me ask you to just take a minute and just characterize for us what a real initiative, what a real program of anti-corruption might look like. If we're doing a systemic, holistic program, you need in institutions with integrity. That starts with investigators, it goes to prosecutors, it goes to courts, and eventually it goes to the correction system. In countries like Ukraine, we generally start with law enforcement, and that's what we did in 2014-15 in with the new patrol police. There also is oftentimes needed a specialized anti-corruption agency. In Ukraine, that was called the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, or NABU. There was a different body that reviewed asset declarations for unusual wealth, called the National um, Anti-Corruption Prevention uh, Council. And eventually we got to helping them establish a special anti-corruption prosecutor, and eventually a high court on anti-corruption, and that was to try to create investigators, prosecutors, and courts with integrity that couldn't be bought and would be focused on high-level corruption. So what I'm hearing there, Mr. Kent, is a very, a very comprehensive effort. So let me read you President Trump's own words to the Ukrainian president in their Ju July 25th phone call, and I quote, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution and a lot of people want to find out about that, so whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, it sounds horrible to me. Mr. Kent, when you hear those words, do you hear the president participating in or requesting a thoughtful and well-calibrated anti-corruption program? I do not. And Mr. Kent and, and Mr. Taylor, um, the defenders of the president's behavior have made a big deal out of the fact that Vice President Biden encouraged the Ukrainians to remove a corrupt 
former Ukrainian prosecutor, 2016 uh, Mr. Shokin. And in fact, uh, Senator Rand Paul on Sunday said, and I quote him, they're impeaching the president, President Trump for exactly the same thing that Joe Biden did. Is that correct? Is what the president, uh, what the president did in his phone call and what Joe Biden did in terms of Mr. Shokin, are those exactly the same things? And if not, how are they different? I do not think they are the same things. What uh, former Vice President Biden uh, requested of former President of Ukraine, Poroshenko, was the removal of a corrupt Prosecutor General, Viktor Shokin, who had uh, undermined a program of... Who you guys also got paid by. ...assistance that we had spent, again, U.S. taxpayer money, uh, to try to build an independent investigator unit to go after corrupt prosecutors. And there was a case called the Diamond Prosecutor case in which Shokin destroyed the entire uh, ecosystem. So now they're admitting the fact that other countries interfere with other nations' policies as well as their politics. Something that we we're trying to help create. And we're trying to say, well, the president interfering with other countries' issues, but we're doing it, well, hey, Last president and vice president did it too. The investigators, Same the bad. judges who issued the warrants, the uh, law enforcement that had warrants to, to do the wiretapping, everybody to protect his former driver who he'd made a prosecutor. That's what Joe Biden was asking, remove the corrupt prosecutor. So, so Joe, Joe Biden was participating in an open effort, established whole of government effort to address corruption in Ukraine. That is correct. Great. So Mr. Kent, as you look at this whole mess, Rudy Giuliani, President Trump, in your opinion, was this a comprehensive and whole of government effort to end corruption in Ukraine? Referring to the request in July? Exactly. Uh, I would not say so, no sir. Yeah, I don't. I don't think President Trump was trying to end corruption in Ukraine. I think he was trying to aim corruption in Ukraine at Vice President Biden and at the 2020 election. And I yield back the balance of my time. Conway is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield my time to the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Radcliffe. Thank, I thank the gentleman, uh, and I thank you both for being here. It's obvious from your testimony today that you both care a great deal about U.S.-Ukraine relations. It's also very clear that you're optimistic about President Zelensky. Um, Ambassador Taylor, you related uh, one of his first acts in office was to... Damn, I ain't giving the black woman any question. Uh, let her ask questions. ...remove immunity from deputies, which had long been a source of corruption... I know you have a number of personal dealings with him. Has he given you any reason to question his honesty or his integrity? No, sir. In your prior deposition, um, I asked you, and I'll, uh, I'll read it directly, um, if nobody in the Ukrainian government is aware of a military hold at the time of the Trump-Zelensky call, then as a matter of law and as a matter of fact, there can be no quid pro quo based on military aid. And to your knowledge, nobody in the Ukrainian government was aware of the hold. Your answer was, that is correct. Is that still your testimony? Uh, Mr. Ratcliffe, um, at, at some point in September... On I'm the, talking uh, about at, on July 25th. Ah, July 25th, sorry. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. They did not know this. All right. And as it turns out, President Zelensky agreed with you. On October 10th, President Zelensky held a press marathon with over 300 reporters where he said repeatedly and consistently over hours and hours that he was not aware of a military hold during the July 25th call. In fact, in his official press release from the Ukrainian government available on his website that I'll be introducing into the record, 
he said, our phone conversation bears no relations to arms. They blocked the provision of military assistance prior to our telephone conversation, but the issue had not been discussed during our conversation. I mean, I didn't even know. So now, in addition to confirming that because he had no knowledge uh, of it, there was no quid pro quo involving military aid during that call, President Zelensky went on to confirm a number of things, that there was no pressure, that there were no conditions, that there were no threats on military aid. There were no conditions or pressure to investigate Burisma or the 2016 election, that there was no blackmail, that there was no corruption of any kind during the July 25th call, again, from his official press release. Therefore, there was no blackmail because it was not the subject of our conversation with the President of the United States. There were no conditions on the investigation, either because of arms or the situation around Burisma Company. He told Reuters there was no blackmail. He told the LA Times there was no pressure or blackmail from the United States. He told Japan's Kyoto News, I was never pressured and there were no conditions being imposed. He told ABC News and the BBC, I'm against corruption. This is not corruption. It was just a call. The Ukrainian president stood in front of the world press and repeatedly, consistently, over and over again, interview after interview, said he had no knowledge of military aid being withheld, meaning no quid pro quo, no pressure, no demands, no threats, no blackmail, nothing corrupt. And unlike the first 45 minutes that we heard from the Democrats today, that's not secondhand information, it's not hearsay, it's not what someone overheard Ambassador Sondland say, that was his direct testimony. Ambassador Taylor, do you have any evidence to assert that President Zelensky was lying to the world press when he said those things? Yes or no? Mr. Ratcliffe, if I can respond. My time is short. Your time yes is or no? That's right. I have no reason to doubt what uh, the President said um, in, in his... Okay, very good. So, uh, in this impeachment hearing today, where we impeach presidents for treason or bribery or other high crimes, where is the impeachable offense in that call? Are either of you here today to assert there was an impeachable offense in that call? Shout it out. Anyone? Mr. Rector, if I can just respond, let me just reiterate that I'm, I'm not here. I've got one minute left. I know. I've got 30 seconds left. I've just got 30 seconds left. You asked the witness a question. The witness I'll withdraw the question. Let me and, just make this. I'm not here to take one side or the other. That's your Ambassador, let me answer this. Let me ask you this question. The general will suspend. Suspend the time. Ambassador Taylor, would you like to answer the question? Suspend the time, please. I withdrew the question. The general will suspend. We will suspend the clock. Suspend the clock and the clock. One minute, please. Ambassador Taylor, would you like to respond to the question? Mr. Ratcliffe, I would just like to say that I'm not here to do anything having to do with uh, to, to decide about impeachment. That is not what either of us are here to do. This is this is your job. We Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Restore time to the clock to one minute. Uh, no, but you may continue. Twenty-two seconds. Wow. Fine. Wow. And and guess what? People are going to look at this. Hold on, I'm sorry. People are going to look at this. That's highway robbery. Radcliffe asked the, to have the clock restored to one minute. Shiv says, okay, we'll suspend the clock and have it restored. But then Radcliffe said, restore it to one minute. He said, no, you got 22 seconds left. I'm like, hold on now.
this 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 thing is is they, I hate to say it, people, but this is going to fall apart. This whole impeachment thing is going to fall apart pretty soon. Mr. Ambassador, um, I think everyone knows that House Democrats have made up their mind to impeach one president. The question that we've just learned is whether or not they're prepared to impeach two. Because to be clear, if House Democrats impeach President Trump for a quid pro quo involving military aid, they have to call President Zelensky a liar. If they impeach him for abusing his power or pressuring or making threats or demands, they have to call President Zelensky a liar to do it. If they impeach President Trump for blackmail or extortion or making threats or demand, they have to call President Trump a liar to do it. I yield back. Chair recognizes uh, Representative Sewell. I yield a few minutes to my esteemed uh, chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Taylor, I don't know if you've had a chance to read some of the transcripts that have been released. Uh, are you aware that other witnesses have testified that Ukraine, in fact, found out the aid was being withheld before it became public knowledge? <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I, I've read that. Um, I think there's still some question about when they may have heard. Um, and ultimately, they did find out uh, when the political story came out, uh, to your knowledge, but others have said even sooner. But they did find out, right, Ambassador? That they did, Mr. Chairman. And at the time they found out, they knew what President Trump wanted from them, that he wanted these investigations, correct? Ambassador Sondland in, in, informed President Zelensky's staff, that is, Mr. Yermak, of, of what was required, yes. So Ukraine finds out about the hold. You're not able to give them a reason for the hold. No one is able to give them a reason for the hold. They know the president wants these investigations and then they're told in Warsaw by Ambassador Sondland, essentially, you're not getting the aid unless you do these investigations. Um, last time I checked, holes happen on all the time when it comes to foreign aid. They just don't normally just give it just right on the snap. Usually holes occur and they happen all the time. Just like holes occur on the, on the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, it happens all the time. Um, now, could you say, was it on a condition of investigation? Well, we can say under the Reagan administration, those uh, aid was on the condition of his agenda and, and Bush, especially Panama. And oh, under Obama, Libya. Yes. Didn't at a time that Obama kind of held aid to Israel? That's correct. That's correct. So, you know, you've been asked how could there be conditioning if the Ukrainians didn't know, but Ukrainians were told by Ambassador Sondland, were they not? They were. They were. They didn't know, as near as I can tell, the Ukrainians did not know about the hold on the phone call on July 25th. That's true. But they were told, as you said, Mr. Chairman, on the 1st of September. And in fact, while they may not have known during the time of the call, they would find out. And when they did find out, they would know what the president wanted, correct? That's correct. Um, Representative Sewell. So Mr. Kent, I'd like to refer you to the discussion um, 
of the May 23rd meeting in the Oval Office um, when the President met with those uh, who had gone to the Ukraine for the inauguration. You briefly testified that you helped propose names for individuals to go to that inauguration. Was Ambassador Sondland, who was the ambassador to uh, the European Union, one of the names that you submitted? No, it was not. Uh, but he ultimately attended that um, inauguration, is that not right? That is correct. And do you know how he ended up as a part of that official delegation? Uh, I do not know for sure, but my understanding is once the list left the NSC staff, it went through a review uh, through the part of the White House that determines presidential delegations. You also testified that upon returning, Ambassador Sunderland used his, quote, connections with Mulvaney, end quote, to order, in order to secure this meeting in the Oval Office. Is that correct? That is my understanding, yes. It seems that this uh, Oval Office meeting was a pivotal turning point uh, in the Ukraine policy. Um, coming out of that meeting, who was given responsibility to your recollection? Who was given responsibility for the Ukraine policy? Uh, I never saw any document that changed the nature of policy determination. In the U.S. government under the Trump administration, there's a national security presidential number. Didn't you also say, uh, yes, please have a little time. You did say uh, in your testimony that you felt that that, um, that you testified that, that Secretary Perry, Ambassador Sunderland, and Ambassador Volker, quote, felt that they had a mandate to take the lead, end quote, on Ukraine policy. Did you not? That was an accurate statement. Their feeling doesn't mean that they actually got delegated responsibility. Have you ever heard the term three amigos? I referenced that after watching Gordon Sunland say that on Ukrainian TV on July 26th. And what do you come to mean for, by three amigos? My understanding of Ambassador Sunland's use of that term is that the three people uh, that were in charge of Ukraine policy during the summer were he, Gordon Sunland, uh, Ambassador Volker, and Secretary Perry. What did you uh, come to? When did you come to learn about uh, Mr. Giuliani's role, and what do you consider his role to have been? I first heard about uh, former Mayor Giuliani's interest in Ukraine uh, in January of uh, this year. Uh, that was a different phase than what happened during the summertime. Was it normal to have a person who is a private citizen take an active role in foreign diplomacy? I did not find his particular engagement normal. No. Now, Mr. D Ambassador Taylor, uh, you testify that there are two channels, a regular and irregular. Um, what did you see as Rudy Giuliani's role uh, in, uh, in Ukraine policy? <clears throat> Congresswoman, I came to see that Mr. Giuliani had a, a large influence on the irregular channel. And was that normal? Is that normal to have a private citizen of the United States take an active role in diplomacy? It is not normal. It is, it is not unusual to ask for people outside the government to give opinions to help form the, the policies of the U.S. government. It is unusual to have a person uh, put input into the channel that goes contrary to U.S. policy. Thank you. You're back. Mr. Turner, uh, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Um, Mr. Kent, Mr. Ambassador Taylor, thank you for your service. I have a great deal of appreciation for your profession. You have very little direct contact with decision makers, a tremendous amount of, of responsibility, and, and not a lot of authority uh, on to affect U.S. policy, bilateral engagements or multilateral engagements. You're, you're trying to shepherd uh, through issues with our, with our allies. 
One example of that, Ambassador Taylor, is that you testified in your prior testimony that you have not had any contact with the President of the United States. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. Ms. Taylor, Mr. Kent, have you had any contact with the President of the United States? I have not. So, not only no conversations with the President of the United States about Ukraine, you've not had any contact with the President of the United States, correct? That's correct. Okay. So, you both know that this impeachment inquiry is about the President of the United States, don't you? I mean, the man that neither one of you have had any contact with, you're the first up witnesses. I just find that a little amazing that the first up would be two people who have never had any contact with the President himself. Now, Kurt Volker did have contact with the President and contact with the President on Ukraine. Mr. Ambassador Taylor, you said that he's a man of highest integrity. Well, I know Kurt Volker, and I know he served as the NATO ambassador. He served as the director of the McCain Institute. He's the highest professional ethics, one of the most knowledgeable people about Europe. He's absolutely a truthful man. Mr. Kent, would you agree with Ambassador Taylor that he's of the highest integrity? I believe Kurt Volker has served the U.S. as a public servant very well. Do either of you have any evidence that Mr. Volker committed perjury or lied to this committee in his testimony to this committee? Do either of you have any evidence that Kurt Volker perjured himself or lied to this committee in his testimony? Ambassador Taylor, any evidence? Mr. Turner, I have no evidence. Mr. Kent? I believe Ambassador Volker's deposition was over 400 pages, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't make a judgment. But you have no evidence that he lied or perjured himself? I have no basis to make that judgment, no, sir. Well, we're not in a court, gentlemen, and if we were, the Sixth Amendment would apply, and so would rules on hearsay and opinion, and most of your two testimonies would not be admissible whatsoever. But I understand in your profession you deal in words of understanding, words of beliefs and feelings, because in your profession that's what you work with to try to pull together policy and to go in and out of meetings to try to formulate opinions that affect other people's decision-making. Ambassador Taylor, have you ever prepared for a meeting with a president or a prime minister of a country, or were you told one thing before you went into the meeting as to what it was to be about, and the meeting be about another thing? Or you get in there and the beliefs or opinions of the president or the prime minister were other than you believed? Mr. Turner, you're asking if I ever learned something new in a meeting? Have you ever walked in with a belief that you thought about the country that you were serving in and find out that they were wrong? I learn something in every meeting, Mr. Turner, but I, you know. Ambassador Taylor, the reason why the Sixth Amendment doesn't allow hearsay is because it's unreliable. It's unreliable because frequently it's untruthful. It is not factual. It might be beliefs or understandings. Ambassador, you testified about a number of things that you heard. Isn't it possible that the things that you heard were not true, that some of the beliefs and understandings that you had are not accurate, that in fact you're mistaken about some of the things that you testified today in a factual basis versus a professional assessment? Mr. Turner, I'm here to tell you what I know. I'm not going to tell you anything I don't know. I'm going to tell you everything that I do know. But since you learned it from others, you could be wrong. But since you learned it from others, you could be wrong, correct? I am telling you what I heard them tell me. And they could be wrong, or they could be mistaken, or they could have heard it incorrectly. Right, Ambassador Taylor? People make mistakes. Right, so you could be wrong. I yield the rest of my time to Mr. Turner. Ambassador Taylor, the gentleman asked if you could be wrong. Were you wrong when you said you had a clear understanding that President Zelensky had to commit to an investigation of Biden's before the aid got released, 
and the aide got released and he didn't commit to an investigation. Sir, I was not wrong about what I told you, which is what I heard. That's all I've said. I told you what I heard. And that's the point. What you that's heard right. did not happen. It didn't happen. You had three meetings with the guy. He could have told you. He didn't announce he was going to do an investigation before the aid happened. It's not just could it have been wrong. The fact is it was wrong because it didn't happen. The whole point was you had a clear understanding that aid will not get released unless there's a commitment. Not maybe, not I think the aid might happen. It's my hunch it's going to get released. You use clear language, clear understanding and commitment. And those two things didn't happen. So you had to be wrong. Mr. Jordan, the other thing that went on when that, when that assistance was on hold is we shook the confidence of a, of a close partner in our reliability. And that... That's not what this proceeding's about, Ambassador Jones. The gentleman has expired. Ambassador That's Taylor, not what this whole thing started on. The time of the gentleman has expired. Ambassador Taylor, did you want to finish your answer? No, that's good, Mr. Chairman. Um, so you're going to cut the man's time out when he was getting to the meat and potatoes. I now recognize Mr. Carson for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. I yield to the Chairman. I thank the gentleman for yielding. I want to follow up on some of the earlier questions about Ambassador, uh, sorry, about Pre President Zelensky's statements after this scandal came to light. When he was asked, you know, were you pressured? How the phone call go, etc. Ukrainians, Mr. Kent, are pretty sophisticated about U.S. politics, are they not? Perhaps. Um, you would agree that if President Zelensky contradicted President Trump and said, of course I felt pressured. They were holding up 400 million in military assistance. We have people dying every day. If he were to contradict President Trump directly, they would be sophisticated enough to know they may pay a very heavy price with this president, were they not? That's a fair assessment. And President Zelensky not only had to worry about retribution from Donald Trump should he contradict Donald Trump publicly, he also has to worry about how he's perceived domestically, doesn't he, Ambassador Taylor? President Zelensky is very sensitive to the, the views of uh, Ukrainian people, who indeed are very attentive to Ukrainian U.S. politics, yes. And so if President Zelensky were to say, I had to capitulate and agree to these investigations, I was ready to go on CNN until the aid got restored, that would obviously be hurtful to him back home, would it not? He cannot afford to be seen to be deferring to any, any foreign leader. They are, he is very confident in his own abilities, and, he's, and he knows that the Ukrainian people expect him to, to be clear and defend Ukrainian interests. Mr. Carson. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, my colleague touched briefly on the campaign to remove career diplomat Ambassador Ivanovich. Mr. Kent, you stated in previous testimony that you were aware of the, quote, campaign of slander against the ambassador in real time, which basically unfolded in the media. Where do you understand this misinformation campaign was coming from and who was essentially perpetuating it? To my understanding, uh, the then Prosecutor General of Ukraine, now ex, Yuri Lutsenko, met Rudy Giuliani in New York on a private visit uh, in January. They had a second meeting in February, uh, and uh, through the good offices of the former mayor of New York, Yuri Lutsenko gave an interview to John Solomon, then of The Hill, 
uh, in early March, and the campaign was launched on March 20th. A corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor gave an interview to a reporter in the United States and made claims that the ambassador provided officials with a quote, do not prosecute list. Sir, do you have any reason to believe this is true? I have every reason to believe it is not true. Uh, what was the reputation of the man who made these allegations, sir? Uh, Yuri Lutsenko was a politician of long standing. Uh, he'd been Minister of Interior after the Orange Revolution. The U.S. Embassy had good relations with him for years. He was imprisoned uh, by President Yanukovych, came out, was elected Majority Leader of Poroshenko, the then President's party, and then became Prosecutor General in the spring of 2016. What was your experience with Ambassador Ivanovich? Uh, was she working hard to combat corruption in Ukraine, sir? She was dedicated, as is every U.S. government official in Ukraine, to help Ukrainians overcome the legacy of corruption, which they actually have made a number of important steps since 2014. So, in fact, before all of this happened, uh, you and your superiors at the State Department asked the ambassador to extend her time in the Ukraine, correct, sir? That is correct. Uh, did you support her extension? I asked her to extend until the end of this year to get through the election cycle in Ukraine, and then Undersecretary Hale in March asked her to stay until 2020. Now, some in Ukraine probably disliked her efforts to help Ukraine without corruption, is that correct? As I mentioned in my testimony, you can't promote uh, principled anti-corruption action without pissing off corrupt people. Fair enough. Now, some of those people helped Giuliani smear her, did they not? They did. So ultimately, that smear campaign pushed President Trump to remove her, correct, sir? I cannot judge that. What I can say is that Rudy Giuliani's smear campaign was ubiquitous in the spring of 2019 on Fox News and on the Internet and Twitter sphere. So Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Kent, in all of your combined decades at the State Department, have you ever before seen an instance where an ambassador was forced out by the president following a smear campaign of misinformation orchestrated by the president's allies? I have not. Nor I. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Uh, Dr. Winston. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Taylor, this should be easy because I'm going to uh, use a lot of your words from the previous deposition as we go forward. In your deposition, you spoke of support for Ukraine and its relationship to the United States and, and how much you support that. In 2014, you, and I'm quoting this, urged Obama administration to provide lethal defensive weapons in order to deter further Russian aggression. Did the Obama administration provide lethal weapons? No, sir. They provided MREs and blankets and things like that. In your deposition, you also said President Obama's objection was because it might provoke the Russians. And in fact, you testified in your deposition that the Obama, Obama administration didn't have a good argument since Russia had already provoked and they have invaded Ukraine. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. <clears throat> it's a shame he didn't take the advice of a combat veteran like you, sir. Someone who understands what deterrence provides because a lot of Ukrainian lives could have been saved if he had taken your advice. In your deposition, you said, and I quote, happy, you were happy with Trump administration's assistance, and it provided both lethal and financial aid, did it not? It did, sir. And you, you also stated that it was a substantial improvement. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. So now we're providing javelins, which kill Russian tanks. MREs and blankets do not do that. 
Today, you said, I was beginning to fear that the long-standing U.S. policy of strong support for Ukraine was shifting. I have a little trouble with long-standing based on what we just talked about, because it wasn't really long-standing strong support. It seems to me the strong support came with this administration. Would you agree with that, sir? <clears throat> Unless you consider MREs and blankets strong support, I wouldn't call it long-standing. I, I, the long-standing that I'm referring to there, Dr. Winster, is the long-standing political support, economic support, and increasing military support. Well, certainly that strong support came from Congress, but it didn't it come did. from the previous administration as compared to what this administration has, de has decided to do. The strong support came with this administration, not the Obama administration. And maybe now we understand what President Obama meant when he told Russian President Medvedev that he'd have more flexibility after his election. Maybe that flexibility was to deny lethal aid to the Ukraine, allowing Russia to march right in and kill Ukrainians. Again, in your deposition, you urged the Obama administration officials to provide lethal defensive... He's right. Because during the Obama administration, Russia ran sacked Crimea. Russia was bullying Ukraine under Obama. But when Trump came in, hey, things got straightened up. Troop weapons to Ukraine in order to deter further Russian aggression. And now they have that under this administration, don't they, Mr. Ambassador? They have the javelins, yes, sir. Thank you. And I would like to yield the remainder of my time to Mr. Zelensky had five interactions with senior U.S. officials in that time frame. One was, of course, the phone call, the July 25th phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky. And there were four other face-to-face -face meetings with other senior U.S. officials. And guess what? Not one of those interactions, not one, were security assistance dollars linked to investigating Burisma or Biden. But guess what did happen in those 55 days? U.S. Senators, Ambassador Bolton, Vice President Pence, all became convinced that Zelensky was in fact worth the risk. He was in fact legit and the real deal and a real change. And guess what? They told the president, he's a reformer, release the money. And that's exactly what President Trump did. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna have more witnesses like we've had today that the Democrats will parade in here and they're all gonna say this, so and so said such and such to so and so and therefore we gotta impeach the president. Actually, we can get more specific. We covered this a little bit ago. They'll say something like Ambassador Sondland said in his deposition, where he said, Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 2019, in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. And if you can follow that, that's the Democrats' plan and why they want to impeach the president. That's what we're going to hear over the next couple weeks. That's what we're going to hear. But no matter what they do, no matter how many witnesses they bring in here, four facts will not change, have not changed, will never change. The call shows no linkage between dollars and the All right, that's day one of the impeachment uh, hearings. So, yeah, hold on.
Oh yeah, it's a damn hoax. Talk about the rock is dead. He's not dead, people. But um, as I was saying, it's it's a mess. It really is. It's really a mess. When you break it down, it's a mess. Whoever put John Legend as the sexiest man alive, the guy's sweet, but whatever. <laughs> I don't judge men like that, so I could care less. Well, like I said, people, what are your thoughts? Email me at jackradioshow number one at gmail.com, jackdutown12 at gmail.com. Uh, Want to donate, cash up, cash sign. CSN46, paypal.me slash tiredurn211, uh, streamlabs.com slash highborn, B O R N E. Uh, if you want to donate another method, you can email me at jackrayandshow to number one at gmail.com. What are your thoughts about the whole impeachment? Um, do they really have something on the president? Is it concrete to where they can say they can impeach him or is this just another circus spent by your tax dollars what are your thoughts email me at jack radio show no morning gmail.com also on jack newtown 12 at gmail.com thank you once again for listening and this is the impeachment day number one impeachment day number two will be coming on tomorrow and i also will broadcast that as well Introducing the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited 5% back on everything you buy at Walmart online. It's the perfect card for all your family's hints this holiday season. Like 5% back on the air fryer Grandpa told you about when he fell asleep in his chair. He didn't fry anything. Or 5% back on the laptop your sister had carolers sing to you. Two turtledoves and a laptop for caring. The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. Introducing the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited 5% back on everything you buy at Walmart online. It's the perfect card for all your family's hints this holiday season. Like 5% back on the air fryer Grandpa told you about when he fell asleep in his chair. He didn't fry anything. Or 5% back on the laptop your sister had carolers sing to you. Two turtledoves and a laptop for caring. The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.